This is Hardcore Podcast. You just heard Bushroll City, Only Truth Wins, off their debut LP, When Words Are Not Enough, out March 18th on War Records. This is a Los Angeles hardcore band started by Andrew Klein, Strife. I think she actually played all the music or something like this. I read, I read this in the uh, No Echo article a while back. They kind of started it just for fun and ended up being the singer, even though he wrote a lot of the stuff. The band name Berthold City is the name of the font used by like SSD and all the youth crew type bands. Nothing could be cooler than hearing Andrew out there front in the band after all these years. Check them out. We'll have the links on TIHCpodcast.com. Some cool stuff going on right now in hardcore beyond just the Philly scene. Shout out to From Within Records. You may have checked out Carter's episode, but now my man's got a podcast. Be sure to check that shit out. From Within Records with Jay Gabbett, Dylan from Shackled. Fucking cool shit. Love seeing our friends do some new podcasts. In that vein, Jamie Ork who I've been a guest on, I think, every year for three years in December. Josh White from State of Mind Touring and Exit Strategy and Strength from Within. These bands that he did toured all over. Obviously, uh, Josh is an ass kicker now. Change man. Love the guy. Well, these two guys got a podcast about MMA and hardcore, and I'll be a future guest. But check out. From Within Records Podcast and the Give Blood Podcast. I'll put some links, same page, like I said earlier, with the Berthold City links, okay? You know, I think 2022 is a year of Bob Wilson. He's put on some amazing shows already. FYA was a smashing success. And pivoting off of the sellout shows of Gulch in New York and elsewhere, 
on top of the fact that Gulch had to last minute cancel FYA, Bob pulled it off, got Gulch to play Philadelphia one more time. Sorry, folks, it sold out in three minutes. Make sure that you give Bob some props, man. He's been on a fucking killing spree. So many good shows coming through Philadelphia. It is Friday the 5th, if you're listening to this now. No, actually, no, I'm, I'm, I'm dumb. The Friday the 4th. Got my fucking dates all jammed up. So tomorrow is one of my f- favorite of the, I can't even call them the young bands because it's been a couple years now, but we got Hangman, Simulacra taking the place of Salvation, Carbonite, Live It Down, Not One Truth, Philly Mocha. It's another Bob show going down. The following, not even the following Friday, two Fridays after that. Jesus Christ, I got my dates all jammed up. We got the casualties, rotten stitches, stolen wheelchairs at the First Unitarian Church with Pissed from Trenton who opened up that Murphy's Law show. Um, Then we have, again, Sunday, February 20th. It's going to be fucking sick. Bad Luck 13. They got some original members. Punishment, original members. We're going to be adding all the young bands. Make sure to check that out. Don't sleep on that, February 20th. Um, I could run off dates all day, but... More importantly than anything, make sure you're going to phillyhcshows.com, Philly HC Shows on Instagram and Twitter, and Philly Hardcore Shows on Facebook. Um, oh, shit, yeah. There's also the Gloves Off record release. And um, I fucking didn't put that flyer up in front of me. But that's also Saturday, which is tomorrow, at the pharmacy with on-site and a bunch of bands. I'm sorry, I don't have the flyer in front of me. And I just, oh, shit, that's also the same day. I know some people go, oh, why well, two shows happen the same day? Well, we're fucking blessed in Philadelphia. Chris has got the heavy shit. Bob's got the other shit. Um, what a fucking time to be alive that we have two shows in the same city and people aren't like having to pick and choose what they want to go see. And then this Sunday is Snub Nose out in Bethlehem. More importantly, it is my daughter's 25th birthday. And despite the fact that on two separate occasions on the Rule of Three podcast, I have mentioned potentially murdering her if circumstances applied, such as Doomsday, or if she was a little brat in a bad situation. But uh, I truly do love my daughter. And I've brought her up a couple times in the podcast. She listens now. So I love you, Kayla. And I probably still would kill you if you became a zombie. Or if I thought we were not going to survive some on-the-road shit. You just got to deal with that. You're 25 years old now. You understand. It's just survival. Um, Also, big shout-outs and and happy birthday this Sunday to one Soupy, Ben Soupy. I've really come around on this kid. I went to fucking kill him at the... uh, I think it was a Comeback Kids show for trying to buy me a whole vegan pizza. But we squashed that. And the kid... He's unstoppable. Goes to every show, moshes every band, comes early, helps out, stays late, cleans up. You really can't ask for more out of a young kid. And um, I hope to live long enough to see him continue on and not just grow his hair out and become a square. So happy birthday, Soupy, all right? Now, before we get into the guest, I've got a friend who hit me up and was like, yo, Loved your rant, loved everything you were saying, but I was like, what's up with this but? And we were going back and forth. And 
partially because the JJ conversation that is going to be the mainstay of this episode is not like a three-hour marathon. I have some extra time. And I was like, fuck it. In lieu of just me and you talking privately, let's have this on the podcast. So without further ado, this is a little back and forth between me and my friend Greg Falcetto. He was a podcast guest. He was also on the Christmas show. He just started a new band called Hold My Own with Shane Merrill, who is another podcast guest, on Sheep from MH Chaos. And uh, yeah, so me and Gregor go back and forth on a bone that he had to pick with something I said on last week's podcast. And relative to that, I had a good time doing the episode. I was a little tired by the time I said it the third time. But I love when people contact me. I love when uh, exchange of ideas had happened. And, fun, and funny, uh, Andrew Klein, who Berthold City singer, War Records he does, hit me up, sent me a track for this episode, and then also sent me a black and white printable copy of the Earth Crisis Stripe and Snapchase shows coming to Philadelphia. And I thought that was just so cool that there was a little bit of an impact just from the things that I said. And shout out again to Andrew for doing that because now I'll print them out and just give them to people even those those two shows, May 14th and May 15th, are completely sold out. So let's get into me and Greg. Like I said earlier, I had a friend hit me up, had some positive things to say about the episode, had some things he wanted to bring up, and we started a conversation. I said, no, 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 no. Get your ass up on the podcast and we'll have a friendly conversation. So, Mr. Greg Falcetto, formerly of the Mongoloids, currently of the newly christened Hold My Own. Let's uh, hear your gripe with the uh, at last episode, buddy. <laughs> I'm trying to remember what I said. What I said, what, what I had flagged. Does it matter if? D- does it actually matter if kids are? are glorifying and idolizing late nineties hardcore bands and not paying attention to what was before it. And you quickly told me that it fucking definitely matters. And, and I'm very wrong, but I was just looking at it as like, if that's what gets them excited because I'm not, I'm not diving into hardcore. I didn't dive into hardcore the way, you know, someone in 2022 or 20, you know, I, I'm obviously I was doing something way different and looking in, winter notes and, and records and reading bands and if you see the same band shouted out in a bunch of different kids record or a def, diff, bunch of different bands records you'd be like who the fuck is this i have to check this out like or you'd see names like crumb suckers and be like what a ridiculous name i need to check them out and then you find out where they're from and what they were about and you get like just more and more in, enticed in it but i feel like sometimes kids will find an obscure band and feel like they're the only ones that know it and be like oh this is so sick but if those same kids are buying current band shit and supporting current bands, and maybe that's what they need to feel like to to do it, I don't know. So the caveat, so the so your your problem with it was saying that if someone found a band from the '90s and that got them excited, that it's a good thing. And the caveat that I would carry over, like I said to you on the telephone, is. There is too many bands from the 90s, in fact. And the quality of 90s bands, if to someone who is, let's say, 18 years old in 2021, that person has no reference point 
to anything else around that band if it's some random YouTube of some random band. And so what happens often is what you're saying is cited, that this is a jumping point, but the problem is back to the interface. If digitally you go ahead and you click on something, especially in YouTube, you're like, oh, this band's so sick. Yes, there's times where people check out other stuff. But what's a problem, in my opinion, is that the universal interfaces of YouTube, iTunes, and Spotify allow people to equate stuff that has nothing to do with hardcore in sync with the hardcore scene for various reasons. Like I was talking about with the corn stuff and like I was talking about in general. So to someone who has no like reference point to what was going on, you could take a band and we'll use a band that I was complaining about on the internet altercation from New Jersey. (laughs) If some kid came to me and was like, yo man, I know altercation had to be one of the sickest bands around that time. Like, no, they were fucking dorks. But with this is like nearly a conversation that I had on Twitter. Well, I was like, you can sweat them all you want, but like, they're not that great. And in fact, they were, they had a moment where they were getting clowned on. I, I believe they got, I vaguely remember at least one, if not two of them getting beat up at the Heights town ballroom in New Jersey before. And, so this person who is psyched on hardcore isn't looking to check out judge youth of today, Warzone, bold nihilistics, sheer terror, Chromags, leeway. They're going right to this like niche world. Cause the late nineties is nothing but niche bullshit. Yeah. And it's already kind of mutating a little bit out of the sink with classic hardcore or, you know, there were so many avenues to find hardcore. And I, like I said to you on the phone, like just in traveling and across the country, we would play, you know, dysphoria would play shows and we were roadie. And there's places in the East coast that still didn't have the spin kicking and ninja moshing that the you know, Connecticut down to Baltimore corridor did. If you went West of that, or you even went like north northwest of that, like out in the middle of Pennsylvania, out in the middle of some of the New Yorks, even some of the places in weird parts of Mass, weird parts of upstate New York. You know, like I we were equating like mosh technique with like that's how far behind the technology was, you know, like and so there were insane amounts of bands because hardcore had a huge explosion at that time. But if someone in 2021 was going fucking apish like this is the fucking greatest thing like when they went nuts for kickback you know it's like yeah that band was cool but like americans weren't hip to them unless they read zines or they were in bands that went to europe it's the truth like there wasn't a huge kickback audience in america when kickback was at its highest point like you had to be hip to them because there was no internet to like make it universally known, you know, like the same way, like Bob brought out cruelty from Japan in another time frame, with another group of bands, Americans in 1997, when a lot of American bands were starting to really go over to Japan, they weren't even aware of TJ Maxx or numb or the, 
the crazy second to none from Europe or Dying Race. And yet here's a band that's relatively new from Japan. They get on the Twitter and all of a sudden universally everyone in America is like, Cruelty's the greatest band and skipped over a shit ton of Japanese hardcore bands like they never existed. <laughs> you know what I mean? So the internet is not this utopian where everything is shared. What happens is people get fixated on the first thing that they find. And I feel like at times people build entire alternate realities around stuff that they hear and they go, Oh my God, this is so cool. And it's like, yeah, within all that stuff I said about how nineties had all this like bad things. There's a plethora of project bands. There's a plethora of bands who were adept enough to write music and record demos, maybe even get to the seven inch level. Cause the availability of vinyl was so universal at that time that there's great hole in the wall records and record labels and very small uh, print runs of seven inches of demos and EPs. And it was very common for someone to release a demo or a seven inch on seven inch rather. And, and you'll find some like rare gems, but if you ask people at the time, they wouldn't even fuck with those bands, you know, and it's the same way more towards your time. And I use this as an example. It would be like, if a band from middle of New Jersey, like the worst band to have to play every club Chrome show and have to sell tickets. If tomorrow some kid got on the internet and was like, this must've been the craziest band from New York, uh, New Jersey, rather you would be like, no, fuck you. They were fucking terrible. And that's the problem that we're having in my eyes. It's not universal. It's not, it's not a blanket statement on all youth, but I see it enough on the internet when conversations start about bands where it's like, yes, if you listen to it, that's cool. But I'm telling you from firsthand extent, watching, knowing the social parameters of hardcore, that nobody fucked with this band. So it's like, I think this is pretty sick. It's like, yeah, because you're listening to it over a computer from a pretty processed sound. If you saw them live, you would either be like, this is cool or they're dorks. But if you were, if you were the same age as us, then you'd be like, oh yeah, everybody hates this band. Fuck them. And that's something that also has to happen. That other people understand is hardcore is still a social culture, you know? Um, no matter what that motherfucker Sonny wants to do, where he's like, let's start new bands and get everybody excited about hardcore. Half of that is bullshit. Not Sonny's end, but half of the bands playing hardcore shows right now are fucking bullshitting us. You know, they don't have an, and, and as a manager, we you should talk about this a little bit if we want to go further into this. You know, a lot of bands at that stage we're talking about in the 90s. We remember, like, you know, if you want to bring up Corn, yeah, Corn played with Orange 9 Millimeter. Corn played with Stick of It All. Corn played with Biohazard, House of Pain, Cypress Hill. Corn played with anybody till they had an audience, till the record dropped, and then they were viable because they started playing shows. And then, you know, like uh, for your sake, because you are a manager and you would understand the business, Corn did a headliner, and it was Corn, Sugar Ray, and Lords of Brooklyn. I was talking about that, and it's like the in Philly that didn't even it barely sold out. J.C. Dobbs on South Street. Which I don't even think it's like a 250 cap room. But three years later, after they played with, it was the Corn Deftones 311 at the Troc. Then the next time after is when they really started blowing up. And they never went back. They never shouted out Agnostic Front. They never cared about any of that shit. Our whole thing was to play enough small room shows 
to show the market and the business industry, the, the business around the music industry, that they could were viable to sell tickets. And that's what happens to all these fucking bands that are coming out now. So many of them. And it's like, yeah, those kids who started these bands, started them in the hardcore scene, yet in the very same breath, they're doing this and playing these shows now because they're trying to build a product that is more viable in your kind of music scene. Am I wrong? Yeah, I mean, a lot goes into it because like, I I agree with what you're saying because obviously more times than not, you know, you're a hardcore band, whatever, you go to a show and... I feel like there has to be like a sense of you just wanting to do it to do it right. Like you can go to a show and you're a hardcore band and you know, you're not hitting yourself in the head with the microphone and bleeding all over the place only at the shows with 500 kids or only at the shows with a thousand people to really show how crazy you are. But then, you know, at the shows with 10 kids, you're crying in the van afterwards because there was no one there. And honestly, that's something that Bob Wilson, I I gave a lot of respect for him early on meeting him because Mongols play with Letdown in Albany, New York. There was 20 kids there, and Bob was still whacking himself in the head with the mic, bleeding all over the place. He jumped off a fucking balcony and almost broke his ankles. He was just being he was being Bob. And and that to me, I was like, oh, this is fucking cool because it's not some jackass trying to put on a show because you're in a stadium of people and you really want to show them how crazy hardcore you are or talk about stupid shit on stage. But when it comes down to it, you're not. You don't do the fuck. You don't care about the history. You don't care about where it came from. You don't care what inspired bands like Biohazard or what inspired bands like Misfits or where the shit came from and how it grew. You just feel important going to shows because all your friends are there and you dab them up and you stand in the circle and you feel cool and and it's the same high school bullshit that you know you're quote unquote trying to get away from but you're just participating in the same style just somewhere else outside of high school or outside of wherever so for me I, I i know exactly what you're talking about there is like a performative nature and i, I think this has been going on a long time where like hardcore Hardcore has been the avenue that is easiest to step out and get on the stage, the smallest level. And often young band, young kids who do the internet searching for these like archaic, lesser known bands, they get hip to this stuff. Like, oh, well, this thing, see, they played this hardcore show. See, these guys were connected. And it's like, they may not have other options. And the other thing that happened is, so like that fucking uh, Coal Chamber band. You know, uh, the winner of 96, they jumped on and played the same night at the Trocadero as a failed Victory Records tour. (laughs) You know, like it was snowing out. Calls for alarm wasn't coming. Um, I forget who someone else dropped off too. And it ended up being abysmal. But Cold Chamber played. Kids also equate that shit in with hardcore too, like, because it's on the same medium, some digital platform, there's n- there's no resonance of like, okay, this is culturally important to hardcore because these bands played halls and these guys had previous things in hardcore or they were an active member of the scene. And it's like <clears throat> why I said that thing about when someone starts being in a band, they stop moshing for because they don't they're too cool. <laughs> there's plenty of really popular people in really popular bands now who are well beyond the average hardcore scene, uh, hardcore scene bands kind of like draw people wise 
And they're going to draw from these two or three years they went to shows as like, well, see, I was involved, but it's like, yeah, you're involved, but you take your band out of the scene. You take your band to higher platforms. And then when you guys want to do the niche, like, oh, let's go and take it back. Then you guys do it. But, you know, I've seen hardcore bands grow from like JJC Dobbs room. I see Madball play there. Well, Madball end up playing and, and selling out the Trocadero a couple years later. But they always played hall shows. They always did everything. And I, I'm not telling somebody how to run their career. But I'll say that the bands that remember the kids who put them on before there was five and 600 other people, you know, the bands that stick with those fans and don't just immediately move up and keep trying to growing their career or growing their brand, that's the ones I look to and I say that's a hardcore band. And they didn't just use our shows like a stepping stone. But back to the original thing, yeah, I don't want to discourage anybody in any way from saying, like, this band you found on YouTube isn't cool or this band isn't cool. Yo, there is a fact that there's a ton of bands that are either absolutely completely fucking unknown or not very well supported or lost in the shuffle because there was no digital space. And that was like a, the big theme of that that podcast rant chaos that I put out was like, the world that we live in isn't really translate well to digital. Like, well, well, hardcore. Sorry, hardcore goes beyond the music, right? Like, you you have the demo, you have the lyrics, but then you have to also look at that time. Oh, this this uh, Johnny, the singer of Blank, he's a fucking loser, piece of shit. He you know has these these stories about him doing X, Y, and Z, and and that you know those things also contribute to what that band is at that given time like like altercation i mean i can't believe i see people talking about that a, a lot recently honestly and and i i mean like they play and i started going to shows 99 2000 and and obviously like they were around and they played a bunch but that was like i never watched them i was in a band i thought was cool i would go the fuck outside i think it's hilarious people are like they're they're somehow like being glorified in, in, you know, 2022, it's very strange and confusing. And I understand the, like when you're saying like on that, on the last podcast and kind of like where your perspective was coming from, because a lot of this stuff comes from being around and knowing, Oh, cool. The band's heavy, but the dude's a fucking poser and who gives a shit. He doesn't go to shows. His band doesn't play and he's a fucking jackass. So fuck him. He doesn't, he hasn't bought a record ever in his entire existence of being in hardcore. Well, like that's it. So like, the altercation some dickhead puts it on an mp3 in the late 90s and it gets shared from kazaa and all them weird ass file sharing things and it sits in someone's computer and then there's this like dickhead aha moment 22 years later where someone's like yo these kids are finally ready for this fresh altercation shit and these kids see the name and they're all enamored by like the mosh stuff and like the the names with the misspelled names and the graffiti logos and all this stuff that we kind of grew up in and they, they highlight it. But, and, and, and the thing about this, I said to you is like, this is just like the bridge nine board. When there was an argument made where people would like really try to tell you that that band up front from New Jersey was like, Oh dude, up front so much better than panic. They're, well, was, they were Connecticut. I think. I think one guy was in New Jersey at the end. But they were Connecticut. Oh, I, I always assumed they were from New Jersey. 
I will not claim upfront from New Jersey. Fuck that. <laughs> but like one guy the- was in New Jersey. I forget his name. He played in the rights later on. But yeah, he was he was a later member of upfront. Yeah, upfront. That's not my shit. <laughs> well, that's Keep like that the thing, right? Like, there, like there was kids like literally like in the, in the advent of the Bridge Nine, talking up these 1988 straight edge bands that were like the fourth and fifth iteration of what was good, and that's what people are finding now is like the fifth or sixth version of the shitty like the shittiest worst copy of Fury of Five with no talent and just embarrassment is what altercation was. And, you know, that's the thing that I don't want to see. I don't want to see people. I don't want to hear it. I don't. And so it's like, I'm not, I am not a legal authority. I can't say, fuck you. Don't do that. But I'll say at the same time, like as someone who was there, we played, we played a show with them at this place called hot shots in New Jersey. And we all sat there in complete silence, just looking at this, like, this is really happening. Like, this is fucking embarrassing. And, you know, like, it was a matinee show at this place called Hot Shots. And for the persons who were putting on shows, it was a girl, and she would just, like, there's always these times in hardcore. There's, like, a side thing, but it also tells stories about why shit's weird. Certain people in certain places would start doing shows because they knew local shows would bring money. So all of a sudden, it's 2000. And there is like a, a place right over the bridge. And I think it's like Westbrook or Westville or somewhere. This place called hot shots billiards. And they had matinee shows where they were like, there was a place where they would move billiard ball, a billiard like things out of the way, just enough for a band and maybe like a hundred kids to stand there and mosh, which was pretty common in the nineties to find like a random spot to just do shit. And then what happened is that lady would start reaching out to bands like, hey, I've got altercation guys coming through. Do you guys want to play? Sometimes we say no. It's the same way we talk about when Vince would book CCs. Sometimes people would just hit a show and then the person who's doing the shows would just pull their own. And they weren't hardcore people. They're like the person who did that show, you know, or that person who booked the shows in that room. So sometimes, so one yeah. time punishment ends up on a show with altercation. And exactly what you said is, is like, all of our friends were outside not watching, and then we were like, all right, let's at least give them respect because we just played with them. It was terrifyingly bad. And I was amazed that they were like, because they were around before us, and I'm like, how long do you think a band can do this? Because, like, you know, Punishment was in our first couple months. I'm like, how long do you think I would be playing in a band and no one giving a fuck about us until I would just say, you know what, let me just go back to whatever else I got to do. And so what I didn't... But you're... but you, but. But you're kind of the person that taught me when you play a show, you play that show and you do it for you. Yeah, but when you're up there and you're you're getting in into it, fuck, maybe those guys were so into it they were like, "Fuck it, we're just gonna do our thing." Maybe bruh, they, maybe they enjoyed bruh, it. They had trip camo and <laughs> they had all the urban camo in different colors, and I think they even had like camouflage guitar cabinets. And it was like, oh, it's a fucking billiards hall in fucking the middle of South Jersey. This is like they're playing with wireless, dude, wireless. Setup. They may or may not have. I'll have to, you know, Damien or Brown would know better. They would remember it more vividly than I do. I just remember sitting there going, oh, like, shit. I remember, and this is where this is why I know so this shit. There was this place called Uncle Mike's Pizza in Browns Mills, New Jersey, where so many bands played. Fury played there. Crutch played there. So many sick bands, and it's like literally in the Pinelands, like the middle of nowhere. 
And like they were playing there, and that was like four years before that. And to me, I was like, this band's still like to me, <laughs> fucking 20. I'm gonna this band's still around and no one likes them. Like, what the fuck? You know, like that band New Jersey, uh, Dirt Nap. That was like on coming correct comps. Oh shit! Like that's another band. Like yep. people kick that name around forever, and you're like, "Hey, uh, no one likes you. Can you just stop playing shows?" <laughs> but like, here's a, here's one for you. So, in the midst of not giving a fuck about, like, skipping over when I said this, you know, skipping over one for one, who was one of the biggest bands in New Jersey from like 1995 to like 1999 completely missed the entire imprint that that band did to find Alter Cage. You go, this is pretty fucking sick, man. I'm like, no, it sucks. And then they get on the online debates kind of funny. Cause it's like, I have no problem with you listening to music and drawing a conclusion that you like the music, but hardcore is not an MP3. Like, yeah, it's in MP3 form. It's in digital yeah. interface. But if you just took a band at the, at the sound and the sonic level of the, the MP3, it allows no structure to say, oh yeah, that band never played with a hardcore band ever. And there's plenty of bands that like literally almost try to model a hardcore. I mean, there was a time when there was actually a band from Reading area called Belligerent and they had a drum kit with two drum kit, uh, two dr- double, uh, two bass drums instead of a double bass kick pedal. And when oh, they were like a metal band and then the minute sick of it all started really breaking out, they turned to like a sick of it all kind of band. No one really fucked with them and like the bigger hardcore scene. So they would play these $5 Trocadero shows. And since we were young, we were going to pay $5 to go see a show on a Sunday anyway. But I've seen tons of those bands. I've seen bands that were thrash bands go to death metal. And then later they would go from death metal to corn. You know, they dropped all the hair. They got silver Adidas pants. And, and so because some bands were just chasing celebrity or pushing their band and they weren't part of what we know to be a scene there'll be a culture and, and that's really why i say at the at the and to stick to my point you can listen to an mp3 you can listen to youtube you think it's fine but like you can't tell somebody who was there unless they're super biased and like if you said to somebody in 1998 i think coalesce and converge is one of the worst bands ever there were people that really held that opinion but history has shown us people love coalesce and both bands were very formative and completely a foundation for a lot of music to come. However, in that same time frame when we're talking about altercation, they're the complete opposite. They were they, they influenced nobody. No one cared about them. So when you find them on the YouTube, it's like, yo, you can like them. But their imprint on our culture is null and void. Yeah, no, I mean that's that's really a, a very accurate way to explain it. It's uh it is it is strange seeing bands like that, you know, and then I don't I don't know them and I don't know anything about, you know, them personally, but it's more just like seeing that be a band name that's I'm seeing more now than I did when they played shows and existed. So, oh, well, they had that stupid sticker they put everywhere, right? They were like, everyone had a they sticker. They put their dumb sticker everywhere. Yeah. Every band had a dumb that sticker. That was like the uh, That's a, I should have brought that up. That's fuck that's a great point to bring up. Everybody had stickers in the 90s. Now no one has it. Um yep. Uh, well, Section Hate, Section Hate, they were the first band in a long time that I was like, "Damn, Mexi Mike is really going in with the stickers." I fuck with it. Like he was that, like that Section Hate sticker is everywhere. Let me ask you: in LA, I'll see them just on the street. I'll be going somewhere with a client or something, and there'll just be a Section Hate sticker, and I think it's cool. Why I have your ear, and we're on a point that's kind of like right on the same path. So, 
there's a ton of bands that are trying to go to a different place with their band, not different place like Australia, but they're trying to play more than the local hardcore scene circuit. And I tell them often, unless you have a manager or a booking agent, currently it's really hard to break out unless you have this immediate hype train behind you because the few managers there's, I don't even think, what do you think dealing with hardcore bands? What do you think? There's 10 managers, maybe 12 total in, in most of the, our thing. Yeah. I mean like, yeah. Cause obviously you're not going to count rough number. Don't have to be exact, but yeah. rough. Like about yeah, a dozen. dozen. Sounds accurate. And they're, and there might be two dozen at most booking agents because there's bands that have already like, we're like, I don't want to go with the hardcore booking agent. So I'll go to this metal career or I'll go to this indie guy. So we're talking about between one dozen managers and two dozen booking agents. I said, we were making a joke about poker or we were making a joke about um, Pokemon cards. What was the jo- oh, I said, uh, yeah, Pokemon cards. I said, if you really want to be a band that gets out there, you got to hope this Pokemon trainer picks you up and puts you in a stable because the way most of these bands who are playing in the first slot or the second slot are getting picked, unless the band headlining says, I want this band to play first, it goes between the booking agent and the managers. And what they do is they trade each other back and forth favors. So the tours that we're seeing are very often not organically always what everybody would want. Like from a promoter, yeah, it's cool to see this band and this look, but like, why don't we get a band that people are talking about that aren't represented with a booking an agent, but I know people from this area would come see. And it's like, well, I got to help this guy out because he just helped my band on this tour. And, or you know what? This is our guy's big tour and we're helping their baby band out. We're starting to get to a point of, nepotism and favoritism that's completely skipping over the entire thing about building bands up that are working hard because you could just be a friend or you could just have this thing that someone thinks is marketable outside of the hardcore scene and they will put them on a terror tour or they'll put them on a vein tour and they'll build them up at a higher pace than a working hardcore band in a hardcore show hoping to build their numbers up to build them out. And I just don't like it. Yeah. I mean, I feel like a promoter, you have to kind of trust their instinct with a show and, and obviously like, you know, having them put the bands that they think make sense and, and those things and suggestions are one thing, but you know, so I feel like a lot of the time it is what it is, right. You, you kind of have these bands that get bullied onto shows. I mean, I dealt with, I haven't booked a show in a few years, but you know, 2017, 2018, I was, seeing a lot of that start coming in where it's like, okay, yeah. And also we want to have this band open and they need to get paid whatever they need to get paid. And then you kind of have to account for all these extra things that you're like, damn, I wanted to book this package and then have these openers, but now it's turning into something completely fucking different. Um, what was it back to school jam 2017 when all the wacky shit happened and the whole lineup switched and state champs was going to headline and then incendiary ended up headlining. Um, you know, that was a lot of that kind of bullshit where, I basically just didn't trust my instinct and let some dumbass booking agent push me around and tell me this, that, and the other, and this is what's going to be best. And, and that was, you know, obviously I went back to what I thought was best and it worked out fine, but yeah, it's, 
that shit. It is. It's, it's rough, man. It's all. It's all political. It's all fucking political. Well, so that that goes back to the thing. So again, you might see some kids ten years from now talk about specific bands who did a singular tour with a vein or a terror and be like, oh man, you know, that band must have been a big part of the scene. It was like, no, someone's booking agent, someone's manager had a friendship. So these dickheads got to play this tour when another band should have been on it. And now that people see this thing like, oh, well, this shows that they played some hardcore shows. And it's like, dude, there's a ton of hardcore, there's a ton of bands that played hardcore shows, but that doesn't make every band that plays a hardcore show a hardcore band, you know? Yeah, I mean, a lot of it just, they look at it as stepping stones. Oh, we're going to start here and we're going to end up over here. And, uh, oh my God, I'm trying to remember. Oh my God. Oh man, I just, with Mongoloids when we were over there in 2000. What was the reference? I don't even know. This is hardcore? 2012. And that said band, it was their first show and before they were playing, was basically like oh yeah 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 yeah, yeah man we're I gonna start know. playing shows like this but then we're gonna get to the metal so we're gonna really cross over we're gonna be like you know it's gonna be arenas like we're just like the guitar player was bummed what he was playing it was kind of like oh my god i wish i could say the name right now but i honestly don't remember it the funny thing is is that's not the only band that's ever did that there's a ton of bands that i always i always say there's three different things that make me know that a band is going to either go into some trash ass place or that they're not really fucking with hardcore. And the first one is when the when the guy who goes and gets on guitar immediately starts coming out with a fucking <laughs> like a, a welcome mat for someone's door full of guitar pedals. I'm like, oh, this band's gonna get whack. Like that when when that shit starts happening and like the youth crew dudes stop wearing like sportswear and start wearing button ups, and then they start only having like 28 pedals, I'm like, oh, this band's gonna be trash. And you see it time and time again, that Justice Band. Remember they played the Edge Day in Philly? And they played like all that other shit. We're like, what the fuck? Oh, yeah. Well, um, I know you. It was Righteous Jams Justice, Yeah, it was Righteous Jams Justice. um, That band from Canada, all the way up in the middle of nowhere. They were sick. But um, I know you worked hard. I just wanted to break your. Oh, Risky Business. That's a Risky Business. I know you worked hard all day. Um, You're always on the phone and fucking getting that shit done. And so in this business stuff, I always take your lead. Um, thank you for coming on and having a conversation about what you didn't enjoy on my podcast. I don't know if I'll always open the floor to people, <laughs> but my friends, if we want to have a nice conversation, I'll bring it on, especially when we got JJ, who surprisingly enough, we didn't go 10 hours. So we got a little bit of time on the podcast. But uh, uh, real quick, talk about Hold My Own and then get the fuck off the show. Uh, Hold My Own is going to do some new songs, record, start recording them. Hopefully that'll come out in May. Play some more shows. Uh, tell people who they tell people what Hold My Own is for people who didn't go to FYA and see your first show. It's a new band that I'm singing in with uh, Anchit from MH Cast and Sector and Shane from The Killer. And yeah, it's it'll be, I think it's it's cool. You can check it out or... Or not, and it's all good. Hey, man, thanks for coming on. Thanks for the little uh, hangout, and uh, I'll talk to you soon, all right? I hope you liked that whole thing with Greg and I. I was driving home from work, and he's like, hey, just to let you know, this is what I thought. I'm like, nah, nah, nah. We'll put this on the podcast. It'll be fun. We had some time to kill because, you know, I know JJ is a really busy guy, and the time frame that we usually expend to talk was not even halfway there. So 
Now that uh, that's out of the way, let's get to our guest tonight, John Joseph McGowan. Now, I would be amazed if I was a young kid being told that, you know, you'd be able to, that I would one day be able to like be friends with John. Um, Not like from a fandom point of view, but just the idea that somebody who's been in a band as long as he has and I would ever link up, but um, I didn't realize I'd be doing shows. But that iconic stage dive in that Chromags video that I saw on Headbangers Ball stuck with me for a long time. And when I started doing shows with John, which that might be now, I think the first time we booked them might have been 16 years ago, the Fearless Vampire Killer stuff. And then, um, yeah, I mean, it was 17 years ago. And then, obviously, the fuck, the first, this is hardcore, was 16 years ago. Fearless Vampire Killers and H2O were the first two bands to headline the first night of this hardcore 2006. John and I became friends, and two years later, I would be involved in booking the 2008 first Cro-Mag show back in Philadelphia featuring John, Harley, AJ, Craig on bass. And um, from, I mean, through that whole time, it just got crazier and crazier and more fun. So many fun stories, and I think in the COVID time, people who are younger, who are finding hardcore, are just seeing a John Joseph that talks a lot about the current state of COVID and vaccinations. They don't really understand the core person and where he came from, what he's about, and even older people who are entrenched in the other side of the equation, like the bicker on Facebook all the time, blanket people with these ideals and discredit their entire career. And for me specifically, I love John. I love what he did for hardcore. But more importantly, I like how he treats me as a friend. I've had a lot of crazy stories, and I hope to bring up a couple of them in the next time I bring them on. But realistically, the things that I look at that make John Joseph an incredible person, and he's a street kid who turned his life towards hardcore through the most weird ways, touring with Bad Brains, ending up at Krishna temples, by proxy, filled in the shoes, and then became the face of the Cro-Mags for a long time. And then as the band fell apart, we talk about it in the show, addiction and depravity and just, you know, becoming what, you know, kids like us grow up looking at the whole time, seeing these guys in fucked up states. And he bounced back. And little by little as he bounced back, you know, he was doing shows in the 2000s to to a degree with Harley. Then later on, um, the band came back like we were talking about. But even in the 90s, he had both worlds. He had this other band. Like, he stayed pretty fucking active. And um, even as I said earlier when the FEK, Fearless Vampire Killers, which is basically the same lineup minus Craig doing all the Cro-Mag stuff and some Bad Brains cover, when they... Weren't doing that. John started a band with Scott Roberts, who's now on the take, but was in Biohazard previously and Helmet and Spud Monsters. Rick Lopez from Marauder. Danny Schuler. I mean, that was a solid band. They played some really heavy shit. Shattered Roma played it at the Knitting Factory. And John was always really big on trying to push eating good and the, the food that they hand make and feed to the Thompson Square Parks, the Krishna Temple people. At the end of the show, John's like, I brought you some food. 
and he brings me up this like styrofoam or paper plate thing or not paper, you know, like that carton. I don't think it was a styrofoam. It was like some kind of weird compost paper thing. And it said Joe Harcourt. I go to it and it was like half eaten. I'm like, yo, what's up with this? And John flips out on his brother. Frank, you ate my boy's food, motherfucker. That's for my fucking boy, Joe Harcourt. He's like, Frank. The guy Frank's going, John, I'm sorry. Joe, I'm sorry. I didn't know. I was just hungry. John, I'm just hungry. And John's berating him. It's fucking hilarious. And um, that's uh, just one of many stories. Uh, a couple years before that, Shattered Realm had played in the Lower East Side at CBGB's for Harley Flanagan. And the show was advertised with like most precious blood and (laughs) all these bands. And uh, it ended up just being Harley's War, Iron's Cross, Dead Before Dishonor, Shattered Realm, and a couple other bands. The turnout was bad and Harley's talking shit on stage. And uh, and then the night came and they're like, he's on stage going, you know, fuck this guy and his friends for sneaking in. That's why you guys aren't going to get paid the night you bands that came and played. We're like, what the fuck? <laughs> so we go up to him after, we're like, hey, uh, you guys got some money to pay us? And he's like, hey, man, you know, we really didn't make a lot of the door, which he's correct. As a promoter, I understand that. So Harley gave us a stack of these DVDs and these like Chromax t-shirts. And I was psyched. You know, I've always been a Chromax fan. So I come out, CBs, and I got these fucking DVDs and shit. And it's me, Joe Nunn, and the Death for Dishonor, Brian and Frankie. And Brian's like, oh, we'll send Frankie in. He'll get paid. Frankie comes out, not only with the DVDs and t-shirts, but a bunch of hoodies. So we were like, damn, Frankie must have intimidated Harley, so he gave him hoodies too. So then we all, you know, me and the boys go down to uh, LES uh, right by the park to go eat. We're sitting in this restaurant, and John pulls up. He's got them same cartons I just told you about in his arm. And he's like, you can't eat that fucking shit. We're in a restaurant. I'm like, what? He's like, nah, motherfucker, come hang out. So we left that restaurant and ended up sitting on the corner for a couple hours just with John, and he's telling stories. And it's just funny. John's the kind of guy that'll stop you from eating in a restaurant to give you free food and entertain you for a couple hours. It was. It's always been interesting. Later on, no matter what the shows were, whether it was the Cro-Mag shows at the First Unitarian Church, which, going back to what I said way earlier in the episode, my daughter, who's 25, her very first stage dive was at that church show. And, you know, as a father, <laughs> watching this kid first stage dive at the church during a Cro-Mag, and then everybody putting their arms up and being excited, really just was, to me, epic as fuck. And um, a lifetime memory, you know? But, um... A couple years later, he beat my mom because we did a crazy show. It was like Cro-Mags and Anti-Nowhere League. And um, that same year, she would end up having uh, breast cancer. And she would eventually have a double mastectomy. She's beaten it, and she even has her breast replaced now. But John had actually linked up with her and sent her PMA stuff and, you know, talked to her about diets and the things to eat. And it just it's important to me that people who – you know, I consider friends. It it really blows me away when they go that extra step and they re, don't not intermediately. Oh, tell your mom, but they reached out and talked to each other, and she was like beyond words. Like your friend John's so nice. He was you know really thoughtful process of thinking about you know the well being of my mother. Places John pretty high in the hierarchy of people who I book shows for, whose bands I I really appreciate. That I see that they go the extra distance and that there's some decency. And when it comes to charity. When it does come to the goodwill of people, I do feel as if John, at his center and core, is a good person. 
And this is the thing that happens is in this modern world is when we look at the internet, we see these camps and we see these ideas. I don't understand why, but algorithmically people pick a side. I wish they didn't. I wish at the core you could look at someone and see their core value, the goodness in them and what they offer and their hopes and ideas and dreams. And John's a guy who, you know, I'm not going to ruin it for you, but, you know, we talk about him being at a zero point and now he's rising to a high point. And it's a fantastic shorter story. I'm going to bring him back on and we're going to go deep into some weird arcane worlds in different stages of his life. But this was a fun one for me. Hope you guys enjoy it and let's fucking go. All right. Today we are talking to one other than John Joseph McGowan. We could go so many different ways with this. We could say the most ubiquitous man on the internet between the Iron Man, the author, the legendary Cro-Mags, the, the band Blood Clot. John, you've been so active. And I, I was actually, this is where I was going to get to is John's probably the guest that's been more active in the second half of his life than 90% of the people I know on earth. John, thank you for coming on the show, my brother. Thank you, and thank you for referring to my Irish last name, Mr. McKay. <laughs> As us, us mix got to skit together. Now, uh, fucking A. <laughs> fucking A. John, uh, are, you, are, you, are you on the precipice of 60? You're not quite 60 yet, right? Yeah, I'm turning 60 in a little bit. How does that feel? Fucking feels great, dude. I'm, I'm doing two Ironmans this year. I got a new album coming out. I'm working on two books. I'm, I got a coaching business uh fuck man i just signed on to do a tv show write it so i mean uh you know it's uh i always tell people to uh invest in your health and then uh, it pays dividends i mean i don't want to be up there making excuses on stage uh you know so uh, I, I invested in my health and uh you know that's that's what's up so one of them one of the things that besides just booking you and getting to hang out and getting to know you as a friend, when you came out with your autobiography, there's some dark shit in that. And I don't know how many, I mean, you know, you grew up with the guys that they write stories about who, you know, fell into a hole and never got back out once the band stuff changed. But you're one of the few people that pivoted out of some really dark shit in the later half of your life, not later, but like later after the band, you know, some people do bands, shit gets fucked up, then they never really turn around. You went from literally in the gutter on the streets, fighting some heavy shit, and now you're coaching, you're going to be on a TV show, you have a multi-book situation going on, not just talking about yourself, but you've talked about health, you've talked about food. Mindset. Yeah, like where where did where did you where when things were at your lowest, what did you draw from to get yourself out of all that? You know, Craig from Sick of It All always tells the story with uh Vinny Stigma. Uh when I was in LA and like I mean, it was I you know, I had a two year addiction, you know, like had fucking drug gangs putting uh kill on site orders on me in new york city for robbing them and and craig always tells the story he pulled up with this uh mutual friend from the hardcore scene but he was a big cocaine dealer 
and I crawled out of the bushes. I was waiting for him and because he wouldn't return my calls because I kept like, yo, can I get another one of those things, which was like a half ounce of fucking Coke. And he wouldn't answer me. So Craig always tells the story. Yo, he 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 like we pulled up and, and fucking John came out from the bushes like with a pair of surfer shorts, no shirt, like fingers black, lips burned. <laughs> and and fucking he hadn't seen me in a while. He was like, holy shit. Fuck, man. What the fuck? And Vinny goes. God bless him. God bless him. I hope he pulls his way out of that. (laughs) (laughs) But it took uh, a lot of crazy uh, shit to go down. I was almost murdered a few times. And, uh, you know, you know, people talk about hitting rock bottom. I'm like, you can actually go under the rocks. and, And that's that's where I was. But I just had to make the decision of, you know, do I want to live or fucking die? And I'm like, even though the band shit fell apart, that's an old fucking story. We know what happened, but it, you know, it, it kind of took everything from me that I had worked for for fucking years, and uh, for that to be gone, the 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 void was filled with hanging out with the wrong people and getting into the drugs. But uh, when I came back, it was two years in from '78. Um, all the way through 90 and um i came back to new york i had nothing like um and i got hit we had sold my girlfriend's car at the time for like two ounces of blow and like plane tickets and like you know i guess i think it was like five hundred dollars and then she got caught at the airport because the father had was friends with fbi i managed to get away and i went to a crack house in this fucking abandoned building. And these dudes were smoking crack with me that I was freebasing from the coke I had. Next thing I know, they fucking smashed my head in and I just woke up in a pool of blood. All my shit was gone. And that's when I was like, if I don't... I went and sat in Tonkin Square Park and I was like, if I don't get out of this, I'm going to fucking be dead. So that was, uh, I just had to crawl my way out. I did it. I went back to training a lot and spirituality. And and then eventually the music came back around too. So, you know. Well, I, I mean, I'm sure that you believe in the idea of when you're fixated in the negative, the only things coming to you is going to be that. But the minute you fixate on positive, you're going to draw that kind of thing. So I'm not surprised that it turned around. Yeah, it was a lot of work, man. Uh, it's not easy. And then to stay, you know, off the ship for so long. Um, and that's why I felt, you know, I had a lot of inner demons that I had to exercise too. And that's, you know, that's what the that's what the memoir did for me, the evolution of a Cro-Magnon. It was a lot of shit I never talked about that happened to us as kids. And so that was like my therapy. I didn't, you know, the other thing is, because I was still AWOL and all that shit. I had federal warrants, so I didn't have health insurance. I couldn't go check into a fucking drug program. I had to literally quit smoking freebase and crack in the neighborhood where I was walking by motherfuckers that were like blazing and they were like, yo, you want to hit this? And I had to like, you know, walk by that shit. So, um, 
you know, it was uh, it was a motherfucker. But looking back, I mean, uh, you know, it, it was uh, it was uh, well worth uh, the fight, you know. I mean, not only not only is it well worth it, not only just out of survival, but also it it shows that you know, I mean, for anybody who doesn't know this, the 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 real way to get to understand John is through his autobiography, the evolution of a Crow Magnet. It's incredible. It starts from his early life. You you hear the Crow Mag stuff, but it goes way deeper in the the psychology of John and the things that he went through. But like uh. You know, as a street kid growing up, you were into different things. Hardcore came into your life, gave you purpose, gave you influence. You would eventually take that to Cro-Mags. Cro-Mags went its way. You fell into some dark stuff, but you still pulled out. And the thing about it is I always, I've always been interested as someone who's been mostly straight edge his whole life. I mean, there was a time in my teens I smoked a little bit of dust for not even a year. Never smoked a cigarette, drank 40s outside of shows. And then got my shit together, so it's been almost 20-something years. But as a street kid who grows up right next to it stuff, I wonder how hard it must have been to fall into that, knowing that you saw it. And, I mean, you talk about it in your in your book, how you were getting away from the junkies, and that's what you guys had to go around with the Lower East Side. But you had, you had, some, diver- you had some really strong shit in you to push out. And, I mean... I don't know what Toby, Tony Robbins and all the people you hear from TV that are life coaches and motivators, but if I'm going to hear anyone talk, I want to hear about somebody who's been through the worst of it, pushed themselves out, and can understand that kind of that rebuilding, so to speak. Yeah. I mean, it was pretty hardcore, too, because I was going to Max's Kansas City as in 77, the summer of punk, and like... And then it manifested, you know, when I was down in D.C. in 1980 and met the Bad Brains and and saw Teen Idols, Untouchables, all that shit. So it was like, um, and although those guys were talking, you know, the straight edge stuff and all that, I was still, I was with the D.C. dudes like Crazy Jay and Billy and the ones who were fucking like partying and stuff like that. But I think the only... uh, you know, the the way I was able to uh, kind of put those demons at bay was I felt I fell back on, you know, I actually went to the Krishna temple and I was like, if I don't move in here, I'm going to be dead. So that's that's basically what I what I did. And just being around, getting back on schedule, uh, getting up, you know, four o'clock in the morning and. I got back into training in martial arts and, and, uh, you know, so it was a whole, uh, it was a whole process, but I think that's what resonates too, because like, you know, before this COVID shit, I was, uh, you know, on the speakers bureau, I had people, you know, flying me all over the place to speak to their, uh, to their companies or, speak you know and then a lot of it was volunteer i volunteered to 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 speak at drug programs and prisons and you know for for adults and and juveniles and the thing was and even gang high schools in the city you know and and it's it's you know the thing is those people they're not going to you know listen to somebody just cuz they have a phd in psychology because like 
they want to know you've been through some shit and you understand what the fuck that they're going through. And I just did this documentary. It's it's uh, it's going to be it's going to be coming out um, this year, I believe. Uh, and it's called 30 to Life. And we went in and worked with like a dozen of these uh, adults who did over every single one of them did over 20 years and in the hardest fucking prisons in California. We're talking Pelican Bay, San Quentin, Chino, uh, maximum security. The one dude spent years in the shoe in Pelican Bay. And, you know, and and it was the guy that did the film, What the Health and, and Cowspiracy and, and uh, Seaspiracy and all that. And like, everybody said their, their, uh, their two bits when we first introduced ourselves to the guys. And um, when I was like, hey, man, I grew up foster, really fucked up foster homes on the streets. I got locked up. Like, I struggled with fucking drugs. Like, you seen the light come on, like, oh, all right, this motherfucker gets it. And these are dudes, they did 10 times more time behind bars or whatever the fuck like my shit was nothing compared to what they they've been through but just the fact that i understand how shit can go awry because of a broken family situation you know it was a you know i can empathize and, and sympathize with what they've been through and people make more fucking uh, mistakes and everything like that so it was uh you know that's why I always I could you know, but from what I went through in my life, I could I could literally connect with anybody at this point. You know, it's like on any level, whether it's music, addiction, spirituality, fucking triathlon. I, I mean, I get guys hit me up. They've done a bunch of Ironmans and they're like, yo, man, this whole shit. I fell back into drinking and drugs, man. And, you know, so I think I was just coaching a client that lives in Germany. And she was, I was like, you know, um, it's tough times right now. So coaches and stuff like that, and people that could help people, it, it, it's, it's vitally needed right now. Look at the, the ODs that says that they're not talking about that. The leading cause of death from 18 to 45 year olds in this country last year was, was fucking overdose and suicides and, all of the shit that went along with isolating and locking people down, that's what they're not looking at, is the side effects physically, mentally, spiritually that that can have on people. So um, we got to be there for each other, man. That that's That's what it's all about. Do you feel in any way as you guide people and you help them stay motivated and push them in the positive direction that that also uh reciprocates back into your own energy like they say if you um often doing doing good for yourself is actually helping others do you feel any of that as you've now grown into becoming a coach well uh two things first of all Prabhupada my spiritual teacher said examples better than precept so I don't try to like I don't ever preach at people people hit me up and they're like yo how did this motherfucker how are you doing all this shit? You're fucking going to be 60 soon. How are you maintaining these businesses and books and, and all the rest of this stuff? And, you know, when they see that, they want to know, oh, is there any way you, you, you can help me to get motivated? And that's why I'm like, yeah. I mean, 
But of course, because the more we help uh, somebody else, it it it, uh, it replenishes our energy too. You know, it uh, you know in the more that we talk philosophy to somebody, it reminds us of what of what the philosophy is. So, you know, I look at it this way: I've become a better person, really helping uh, people in my life. Like I just told this client today, I've been coaching people for twenty years. I just only started the business in two thousand twenty, but this is what I've been doing. And and people have helped me, so I'm just really paying it forward. I don't, if I have any special gifts to that, it's just because, like so many other people, I've been down the hard road, so I, I know what to watch out for. I know um, what got me, you know, like, so that's, there's a lot of lessons to be learned. And, and one of the qualities that we develop when we go through shit in life is resiliency. We have the ability to bounce back from hardships and that only comes if those hardships are experienced. And I just wrote that yesterday, um, that true character is only revealed under pressure. The greater the pressure, the greater the revelation of true character. So, you know, you, you, you see so many people and, um, they don't get put under pressure and, and, you know, and then they present, um a characterization the mask they wear in public that they got their shit together and everything else and then when the pressure gets applied the motherfucker that you thought had their shit together gives up and the people that you didn't really think that they were that fucking strong like blow you the fuck away you're like holy shit you know and my my writing teacher always said that's what made fucking Rambo the first Ram the first first blood was great because the characterization didn't match the true character. He was just this guy wanting to be left alone and fucking he was a loner and you you know he was humble and fucking all of this. And then the beast came out. The 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 true character of Rambo came out. And then later on, you know, in the Rambos, it just became a joke because he's fucking got oil on and he's all muscular. And it's like, you know, when the and I'm writing a script now uh, based on the first summer I spent really out on the streets in 77. And it's like I have to really dig into, like, what was my characterization and what was my true character? And my true character was I was a person that was hurt because I was abandoned by my family. And that facade that you put on, the mask you wear in public is don't fuck with me. I'm like, I got it all together. This, that, the other thing. But in real life, there was a, a lot of shit going on under the surface. So that's... uh. That's really what it's um, what it's all about is uh, we see, you know, like the Marines say, when the going gets tough, the tough get going, you know. I was always wondering, and we, we spoke on this, but I like, you know, privately, when you you showed me a manuscript of your first book and then I've always wondered if you wrote first, then brought it to someone and then you got linked up with the coach 
or did you just wing it? Like, how did how did that whole thing begin where you go from, because, you know, at the time when you were doing the book, you were in the midst of, like, the Iron Man stuff was really starting to pick up. You were starting to really get in that. The Cro-Mags was kicking off. You had so much going on all at once. But I know them stories had been in you forever. So was it very punk rock where you're like, yo, fuck it, I'm just going to write in a book until I can't stop? Like, how was your original writing process? And how have you changed your writing process now that you're on, what are you, on your fourth or fifth book? Sixth. Oh, shit, I'm sorry. I'm working on book number six and seven right now. One, so, one, on, one on addiction and then one on uh, discipline. So, so the process, uh, the process was this: was that I was studying to write film, right? So my girlfriend at the time, uh, we were writing a script together, and I was basing a lot of stuff from my life. Like the main character went through similar stuff in foster homes and broken family. Although I never, I never discussed the real fucked up shit that happened to, to me and my brothers, that was always like, you know, the, what these motherfucking dudes were doing to us, the, the molestations and shit like that. That was, that was like taboo. I never, ever, none of us ever fucking brought that up. But the thing was at the time I, I was, I was working on a screenplay and we went and took my teacher's course and uh, it's a three day seminar intensive and, um, you know, my, my teacher just kept talking about how people wear a mask in public and, you know, you see these guys and they're fucking act like such tough guys, but underneath they're, they're, they're marshmallows, you know, this and that. So I didn't even have the book idea in me. It, it was, I was writing, I was writing, a, um, I was using the material for a film. I hadn't even started doing Ironmans yet. I didn't do an Ironman until I was 50. So this was prior to that. This was in like 2000, 2001, 2002, probably like 20 years ago. And um, during the break, you would get a chance to, to ask Mr. McKee questions. And I said, you know, Mr. McKee, like I waited till everybody else left. And then I was like, as far as a, you know, the main character going through abuse as a child and all this shit. And he stops me and he goes, abuse is the number one cliche these days in bad writing because you're trying to gain sympathy for a character that's flat that we could otherwise give two shits about. And then we throw some child abuse in there and the audience is supposed to care. Well, guess what? It's not what happens to the character, it's what they do as a result of that. And that was like the light that came on. It was like that hurdle I had to get over. And then um, my writing partner moved to Australia. She was my girlfriend too, but she got in a play with Russell Crowe in Sydney. Or I think it was Russell, like some the Sydney Theatre Company, a big opportunity. And she's like, what should I do? I was like, what are you fucking kidding me? You, you, you go over there. That's it. And she kept telling me with all the stuff she knew. And then one night before she, you know, it was like before she left, I just I had this dream and it was brought back all. And this was after McKee said that shit. And I just woke up like hysterical crying, man. And that's when I was like, yo, 
I never told the real story about all the shit. And then like we had this like fucking, you know, we just stayed up and talked for hours. And she's like, I knew that I knew that that's what happened, but I didn't, you know, want to like pressure you into it. So then when she was leaving for Australia, she kept saying, you need to write the memoir, man. Nobody's going to believe this crazy shit, you know, talking to your brothers and all the shit you guys went through in the foster homes and the streets and the dealing of drugs and the lockup and the Cro-Mags. Like, this is a fucking amazing book. And then when she left, she slipped on my on my wall. She taped to my wall in my back room and I didn't know she did it. I came in like the next day and she said, write the book was the note that she left. And I just started right then. And then Mr. McKee wrote in my book, always write the truth in my, like I bought his book story. And when he inscribed it, he goes to John, always write the truth. That was what he told me. And I, and I kept getting to this part of, the book where the fucked up shit happened in the foster home and I would just break down and just have a fucking breakdown and, and, and sobbing uncontrollably. And then I would just have to fucking put the book aside and walk away from it. And I kept doing that for like a couple of years, man, it really took me. And then I was like, you know what? I got to just tell the real, tell the story the way, the way it happened. I can't leave that out as sometimes people would say, you know, it's embarrassing to tell, you know, uh, motherfuckers shit like that. But in order to heal myself completely and, and get that real story out there, the complete story, that's part of the story. That's what made me go onto the streets and be violent that nobody was ever going to, fucking put their hands on me and you know like that's the reputation I had as a kid on the streets and then even like you know coming back down uh living in the squats in the 80s and all the crazy shit I was doing that was part of it but that's how the book manifested and I just kept writing and writing and I actually stayed by myself I didn't even have any relationships or anything for like five years this was like deep soul cleansing to me on every fucking page that I wrote. Um, it came down to family and what's important, you know, and that's why that book came out the way it did, you know? Well, I'm wondering if when you saw the success, I remember you had not only the MP3s at the time, but you also were doing the spoken word. We were talking about the book where you know they say there's the imposter syndrome the people who are on the path and kicking ass sometimes they do something and they feel like I, should i even be writing a book like how are your thoughts as you released it and then what was the impetus to push you towards writing uh the next book which really even though it had a lot of your thoughts in it it wasn't like the john joseph story it was yeah. meet us for pussies like how did oh, yeah. how did you transition from here's my life story to now that i feel good about myself as an author i'm going to take on something completely different well um i you know i always tell this story and um so right when I finished the manuscript, or well, I was in the process, I, I was I had spent years on it. I saw my friend on the street, and her father was a famous writer, 
uh, wrote books. His books became movies. Uh, I don't want to say her name, but, um, you know, and she was nominated for an Academy Award herself for documentaries. And I was like, I think I was like probably halfway through the book writing it. And I was like excited about it, you know? And I said, hey, I'm writing this fucking, you know, and I used to date her too. So years prior and an early, like, I don't know, I guess nineties or something, early nineties. And um, she said, oh, you're never going to get published because my father can't get published right now. The, the, the literary shit is really fucked up. Like, He's got, you know, books under his belt. You're just a first time writer, I, I, you know, and that just got to me, man. I was like, when somebody tells me I can't do something or you won't be able to do something and I worked my ass off to make it happen, it, it fucking lit a fire under me, man. I mean, I was putting in eight hour writing days and then go back the next day and you know, edit and do all this shit. So that really like lit a fire under my ass uh, to get it done. And then the book came out and um, I got the cover of the Village Voice and like all of this crazy shit. You know, Patty Jenkins, who did Monster and all those flicks gave me um, a blurb for the back cover to Adam Yao from the Beastie Boy, like, you know, I just sent people the manuscript to get the stuff. But then, like, when I got the Village Voice thing, I, I she was the first person I called. I was like, hey, did you see the voice? And she's like, oh, my God, congratulations. And I was like, I just want to tell you something. Like, as a friend, like, when you got went to film school and were doing your thing, I tried to encourage you. But for you to, like, shit on my dream of what I wanted to do, you fucking help me more than you know. And, you know, she was like, well, I didn't mean, I was like, well, you know, it was kind of fucked up that you did that shit, but whatever. I'm not going to hold it against you, whatever. But as far as the dietary stuff, um, I just started writing about that. And, and like, you know, I was doing this shit fucking before anybody. And as far as like still doing it, how, you know, it, it, I started doing it in 81 and and learning from health experts. So I just felt like I put me to some pussies out myself. And then, you know, this agent um, read it and was like, and he's with ICM, which is one of the biggest literary agents in the fucking world. And they were like, yo, I could sell this fucking book. And I was like, go ahead, man. And then guess what? Within a week, he had like five offers on the table. And um, we rolled with HarperCollins, man, which is a major publisher. But at this point in the game, with the way everything is, it's you just got to hustle. And now I'm like doing the shit myself. I, I, I did uh, the PMA effect myself. I did hardcore kitchen myself. I did unfuck your health myself. And I'm doing these next two books myself. So it's just, you got to show up every day and write, you know, that's, that's what it takes. Just like, we, you know, we got this music coming out that we're working on now too for blood clot, a seven song EP, but it's like, it's the same process. It's, 
you got to do the work. You got to show up. Like everybody wants to have lip service on the internet. Fuck all that shit. Like I'm just like, I never like would sit there bragging about, oh, I got fucking, you know, I'm working on this next thing. And this, this music is going to make people rethink why they ever picked up an instrument. You know, we have a certain person that, you know, talks that kind of shit. And then it's like later on, it's like you got to eat crow, so to speak. <laughs> no pun intended, but I mean, it, it's just just do the work, man. Show up and, you know, the confidence comes with turning pro. You got to turn pro like, you know, and, and I'm going to tell you a story and I don't I don't say this to brag. Right. So I wrote this TV pilot. And it was about the angel dust trade and the shit I went through, right, with that. So I gave it to Patty Jenkins, who did Monster. She did fucking Wonder Woman. She's from the hardcore scene in D.C. and New York. She dated Jimmy Jimmy from Murphy's. I mean, she's she's a fucking hard chick, man. That's why, that's why Eileen Warnos met all these people and she said, you're the one going to tell my story at a, at a fucking 20 people that wanted to write her movie. She chose Patty, right? Patty Jenkins. So I look to Patty as a mentor, you know, with, she's helped me so much with all my writing for, for television and film. So I gave her the pilot for, uh, for this show. And she goes, what's missing out of this is, um, it's the subplot of the police. Like, that's a huge part of this story. Who were the cops? Who was the police that were trying to fucking take you guys down? And I was like, holy shit. So it took me over a year and a half to find a detective that was in the 105 in Queens that was the area where I was selling angel dust. And like my friend, Bill Hall, Sergeant Bill Hall, he was in the seven five in Brooklyn and, he just had, he was looking and looking and couldn't find nobody. And this was going on for over a year. And then one day he just wore his seven, five sweatshirt in long Island. And he went to the supermarket and he walks by this older guy and he, and the guy goes to him, are you on the job? And, you know, he's like, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm out of the seven, five. And he goes, Oh yeah, I was in the one. He's like one Oh five. That's Queens. Blah, blah, blah. They start talking. He's like, look, my friend push comes to shove. The guy fucking has me come meet him in long Island. I start filling up notebooks of this guy's fucking story and what, what he went through. Well, guess what? He became the main character of the script. And I, I kept working on it and digging to the, to the core of the fucking story and what drives somebody, you know, like what happened to make him not like to come after the drugs and all the shit that he did. And when I gave, uh, so the literary agent from ICM who was Daniel uh, Kirshen, right? He goes, do you have any TV stuff? Because like I'm hooked up with the, the fucking television division in ICM in California. I'm going to be switching over to that. I go, yeah, I'm working on this pilot. So I gave it to him and he gave it to Howie Tannenbaum. Howie Tannenbaum is fucking Vince Gilligan's agent. That's the guy who created fucking Breaking Bad. All right. So fucking he reads the pilot and he's like, 
fucking fly this guy out here, man. I ha- I want to meet him. So I had a fucking meeting at ICM, like the biggest fucking agent. And I walked in and, and, and his assistant was there. And he goes, yo, you don't know this. Uh, he goes, how he never does this. Like, you don't know how fucking huge this is. And I was like, believe me, like, you know, I did my homework. I know, I know who he is and how he comes in and he sits down at the big conference table and it's me, his assistant and Howie and Howie goes, I just want you to know you wrote a fucking badass script, man. And he, he goes, I get, I get a hundred scripts a month in here for pilots. I can't even get past the first two pages. I was hanging on every scene. I wanted to know what ha- I wanted to know what happened, what was going to happen when the fucking 58 minute uh, pilot was over. And I right away, I said, well, you know, that's because of my teacher, Robert McKee, you know, and right away he knew. And then he nods. He's like, yeah, I go, I just everything that he taught me, I had to put I put into my writing. I apply it to my writing. Every scene has to turn on a value. Every, you know, more at stake, more at stake. And um, he goes, he goes, it, it shows because the writing stands out. And and that's what I'm, when I say turning pro, like the, um, the book that, um, what's his name? Um, Stephen Pressfield wrote the book. He also did uh, The War of Art, but he has another book called Turning Pro. And that's what it's all about. You know, we can't approach things with a hacked mindset, you know, like, I'm just going to do the least and throw it out there, you know, and, and think like it's not in this day and age, it's not going to get noticed. That's just people are looking for something that stands out. And that's, you know, and then I I, I naturally, you know, he sent he sent it around to the biggest producers in Hollywood. And the reason that they held off was because, number one, it was a period piece. But I'm a I'm an unknown writer. So what Howie said to me was, look, man, we can revisit this. What I need you to do is get some writing credits under your belt. Like what, you know, uh, what did that's what Vince Gillian did. He wrote for The Wire. He wrote for The X-Files and other and The Shield or whatever. So he had those writing credits. And then even then, when he tried to pitch Breaking Bad, every fucking network turned him down. Every fucking network said, no, this is never going to get made. And then AMC gave him the chance. Guess what? Most successful television series of all time ever. Hands fucking down. So it's the same thing with the blood clot stuff now, you know, like I'm working with Tom Capone and he's a fucking perfectionist. So it's like now we're getting to the point where we wrote shit good enough right now that we're recording this weekend. And um, that's what it's all about, man. Just, you know, respect the arts. If you're going to be a fucking if you're going to be a painter, be the best painter you could be. If you're going to be a musician, learn the fucking music, man. Learn like Daryl always said, man, from the bad brains. That's why those dudes were so badass. They fucking studied the shit. They fucking, they listened to all the, 
you know, they listen to all that fusion, the return to forever, the fucking uh, Mahavishnu, all the baddest motherfuckers out there and studied the craft and played, you know, played classical and everything else. I mean, there's self-taught motherfuckers, but there's also a lot of people that really put a lot of work into stuff. And, and that's what I tell people. Number one rule, don't be a hack. You know, thinking about all the people that you just referenced, I find that talking to different New Yorkers on this show, there's such a crisscross, like there's no way that it, 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 there's that you do what you do unless you either live in New York city or Los Angeles. Cause you grew up, in the LES hardcore scene and you made your way to be bumping elbows with so many people who'd be involved in the film and the, the book industry. And I wonder if you didn't even realize until you started on the path of trying to become this kind of creative person beyond the bands, how many people you already knew in either industry. Well, I'll tell you, like, we had, we, you know, ICM wanted me to do like a reality TV show like this, but real shit, like helping kids that were all fucked up and all this shit. And it was amazing. Like, we were going to like Spike Network, Spike TV, and all these. And, and like, the dude who owned all of Spike Television came out and was like, I had to see if this was the same John Joseph from the fucking Cro-Mags. Holy shit, I saw you guys in, like, 85 at Fender's Ballroom. Oh, like, like, it's amazing how many people have roots in this fucking scene, dude. And then it's, like, six degrees of separation, like, all the other shit, like, you know, this person knows that person who knows that person. So it's like the connections, you know, that it, it's what I always say, man. You never fucking give up. And that's why I posted today. I posted an image and then it was a glacier, right? And, and not a glacier uh, of like a fucking, um, what did the Titanic hit? A fucking iceberg. Oh, iceberg. So the tip of the iceberg is sticking out of the water and then it says success. But under the water, a majority of that iceberg that you don't see, hard work, persistence, working late night, all the rejections, all the sacrifices, all the discipline, all the criticism, all the doubts, all the failures and all the risks that you take to get what you want. Failure, fear of failure just can paralyze people and and, and that's another thing, you know, the value of anything is in direct proportion to the amount of risk that you willingly undertake to achieve that. So the greater the value, the greater the risk. And everybody wants to play it safe and be like, oh, you know, I don't want to like, you just have to like work hard and throw your shit out there and then the doors will open. And it's, I don't want like, I started writing scripts 30 years ago. I haven't fucking sold one, but you know what? I love writing, so I never fucking quit. Now I have all these fucking scripts and the doors are starting to open. But imagine if I would have quit 10 years ago in the art and said, fuck music, fuck writing. I'm going to go live some fucking quiet life of desperation in the suburbs and have, you know, you know, 2.3 fucking children and two, I mean, I mean, you know, people could do that too. I don't, I don't knock that. It's just not, 
it's not my thing. And uh, I stayed active in the arts. And that's why it's like, I never quit, even with, you know, the rejections or whatever the fuck. Uh, you know, we just lost Todd Youth, man. Like, we had this album that was doing amazing and all these bands were hitting us up to go on the road with them. And then the dude relapses and gets fucking fentanyl and dies. Boom. Like, and then, you know, it's back to square one. It's like, what do you do now? Like, I don't want to do the Chromags because there's another, I didn't want this like two Chromags out there on the road. So I just said, you know what? Fuck that. I'm going to wait out of respect for Todd. And then I'm going to start getting other musicians. And it was in the beginning of the pandemic in, in 2020 that we started putting this lineup together. And it, it like, you know, like in the middle of lockdowns, like with insane amounts of adversity against us. And we started demoing songs and doing all this stuff. And no label will touch any fucking new band now because like fucking the, the music business on that aspect is like, it's fucked. Because nobody knows when they could tour, when they could do whatever, like their catalogs are backed up two years of albums that meant to come out that they held up because they were like, well, let's see if the world's going to open back up. And it never fucking has. I mean, it's slowly now, but I just talked to my friend. He's a sound man in Germany. And he's like, this place is not opening up anytime soon. So like, you know, but to keep pushing on and pushing on and then, playing the Tompkins Square Park show, which everybody all over the fucking world had something to fucking say about that. Meanwhile, they were doing, the big bands in California were doing outside shows. But, you know, the fact that we did it and said, fuck you to the man, and then they had to tell all these lies about the show that we lied to get the permits and all this. And, you know, so it, it's just like, it's been one thing after another, but... You don't quit. If that's the message I have for anybody, that's what I learned as a child going through all that shit with no family in the streets and the drugs and everything that happened and getting locked up. It's the resiliency. It's that bouncing back, not quitting. You know? I'm, Even I'm, if, I'm you amazed. Know, I'm, I would listen to hear you say that you don't quit. I have to bring up since we started doing shit, whether it was the different shows, the different iteration, and Chromax, and when you're talking about the book, how the fuck did you manage the Iron Man, the bands, the books? Then you started getting to the coaching aspect. Like, did you ever? Are you at the point where you had to hire someone to help you schedule? Because everything Never. we just talked, I did it all myself. I did it all myself, and the way you do that—that's the system that I teach. You know, my website, johnjosephdiscipline.com. That's that's what I teach. That's it's the discipline. The discipline creates habits. Habits create routines. The routines become who we are. That's my fucking mantra. 
right? But it all starts with the discipline. It starts with getting up at four o'clock in the morning. And you're not going to get up at four o'clock in the morning if you're up to one o'clock in the morning and you ate dinner at 10 o'clock. So it's the discipline of being disciplined in every fucking aspect of your life. And that's how you get shit done. And even in the thing, the first thing I say is you have to be organized. You have to be organized. You have to fucking, you know, time management and all of those different areas of discipline uh, through uh, being organized. That's what it all, it all counts as that. Like, you can't do all of this stuff. Like, that's why people will do one or two Ironmans and then they're done. Because it's like, it's not that they couldn't do enough. It's the amount of time that it takes to, to train. And, and the last two races I did, um, you know, I'm, I'm healing back from a, a fucking triple hernia surgery. And, and then I, and then I, I, I tore my hamstring, uh, very badly. So to, um, to do any of that stuff, just to write a book, you have to be so focused, like, and then to, write an album, uh, uh, you know, write this music, write, uh, you know, write, finish two books. I finished two books during the pandemic and I trained for Ironmans uh, and, and, and coaching business and all this other stuff. It takes you to be very disciplined with your time. And the main thing is you don't have time for bullshit or bullshit people. And, and I, I don't mean that as like a dig on anybody. I'm just saying like when motherfuckers just is, 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 you know, it's like nothing but drama being brought to your life of people that, you know, the definition of insanity is to keep doing something that failed in the past, doing it the same way and accepting, expecting a different result. It's not going to happen. So that's, I you know, and... The big offers came, you know, for the Cro-Mags reunions and all this shit last year. I turned every fucking one of it down because it's not about money. It's it's like I don't want to be around negative energy, man. I want to I want to be around people that's positive. And and my thing too is I'm looking for mentors. I have coaches in my life. I have a business coach. I have an Ironman coach. I have mentors that I look up to and I look to the people that are kicking fucking ass in all these different areas. And I'm like, I want to be around that energy. I don't want to be around the crumb bums that sit there talking shit on the internet and throwing shade and, and all of this other fucking pussy shit. It's like, where the fuck did that ever be part of the scene? Like fucking 30 years ago that the amount of shit that was talked for us playing that show in Tompkins Square Park, oh, a super spreader event, this, that, the other fucking thing, not even one single case of fucking COVID. If people wanted to wear masks, they wore masks. If they didn't, they didn't. We, they tried to say it was a white power racist. Meanwhile, we had a Black Lives Matters fucking table collecting donations. And it's just, it never, it's like, man, you know, there's a famous saying in India, and it's when you're trying to do positive shit and put good work out there, and these motherfuckers are trying to, 
you know, and you're trying to get down the road and they're throwing fucking nails on the road to try to give you flat tires. You know, there's the same, uh, you know, that, 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 you know, when the elephants move through the town, they care not for the barking of the dogs. And that's how we have to be in life, man. We have big goals we want to accomplish. Like, you know, I don't care who's talking shit. I can give a fuck less, honestly, to tell you the truth, because if somebody's life is consumed with fucking fault finding and talking shit about somebody online, it's that's a reflection on them. Like if you read um, if you read the four agreements by Don Miguel Ruiz, which I would suggest anybody reading, listening to this podcast, get that fucking book. He says not to take things personal when people put that poison out into the world. It's showing their consciousness. It only becomes fact if you accept it, right? Then that's when that poison can affect you. But no matter what you're doing in this world, there's going to be critics. And most of the critics are people that failed at something that you're trying to accomplish. And they're trying to throw roadblocks and throw shit in your fucking path because they failed, you see? So you can't worry about those people. You just gotta keep working hard, showing up every day. You can't, like my teacher said, you can't say you're a writer if you're not writing four or five hours a day. If you're not literally investing that time in your day, you know? You can't say you're a writer. You can't say you're a musician. You can't say, any of this stuff, like, because at the end of the day, it's, it takes an investment in yourself completely to, to make the shit happen. I know he's all, you went on a, um, a good little tear here. And there's two things that you brought up that I was going to speak on the mentor thing. And the coach is really awesome. How you, how you uh, mentioned having them. And I have to wonder if this goes all the way back to when you were still finding yourself in, uh, and you ended up being around the bad brains at the time when you know not only were they you know, they're the bad brains, but they were the they were the thing. And then yeah. every every step in your musical career, be it on the road with the bad brains at one of the craziest moments for them, to the time period where the Cro-Mags was that iconic New York hardcore band. Till then, when you started doing the things in the 90s like you still you've never been in a band with a non-named player you've never been associated musically with anybody who's not head on one of the best or always at the top list yeah. of people so i have to wonder if in talking about coaching and mentoring and being around things like it also it also in, it pushes you in the musical sense where you can't walk into a um a band practice whether it's with Craig or AJ or Mac or even back with you had Doug Hines, you had Paris. You, you've always Doug had the Allen. best play. You guys always had the best goddamn players there were. Yeah. It had to make you a better musician. It had to make you step your game up. And I imagine that also had to have its roots in what you're doing now. When you talk about writing, when you talk about coaching and you talk about like Ironman, it seems like the deeper pool that you're in you're gleaning all this information and it's making you a better person in that activity. 
Absolutely. I mean, I was blessed to like meet the baddest motherfuckers to ever do this music and, 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 and get to, and get to work with them and, and be mentored by HR. Like I was there when he was writing those lyrics on the raw, the raw sessions for, for that first album. And, um, you know, just watching that and, and just like, seeing that it sets the standard kind of like, all right, this is what I aspire to be. I'm not trying to be like, you know, the beastie boys, Pollywog stew era. Cause I was there for that and they could barely play their instruments. I mean, let's get fucking real. I was there. I was there for the first show. They opened up for the bad brains uh, at, at Max's Kansas City and then even Trudy Heller's The Playroom on 6th Ave a little so like I when I saw The Bad Brains and you know you gotta remember I saw fucking Sabbath in the 70s Led Zeppelin all of those fucking bands and I always aspired to um, to to be like what my fucking heroes were doing right like I wanted, I wanted to be on the level, not that you could, but you could aspire to do shit as fucking nasty as the bad brains. Right. And I'll tell you something before, um, I ever met Mackie, I worked in a health food store and the guy used to come in and deliver sprouts. And he's like, and Tom, the hippie from the health food store, goes, that guy's son is the best fucking drummer in New York City. That was Mackie. He was talking about Mackie. And then I went to see, um, fuck, what was his uh, band? Frontline. Frontline opened up for, I forget who, like, I think it might have been the Misfits or somebody at Great Gildersleeves. And I was like, like when I saw that band, Noah Evans, Miles, Kelly, and Mackie on drums, and they had Gibby, the late Gibby, God rest his soul, singing. But when I saw that band, I was like, yo, man, I wanted to get in that band. I was like, how am I going to be the singer for that band? And then from hanging out at 171 uh, and hanging out with Harley, that's how the first Cro-Mag lineup started. It was Dave Hahn, the Bad Brains um, manager at the time, was the drummer. And then Dave Stein, not the Dave Stein, the lawyer, another Dave Stein was the guitar player. And, you know, I guess we rehearsed for fucking five or six months through that whole period. And then, and then it ended. But the thing was, Whatever the fuck you want to say about the maniacs that were in the Cro-Mags, be it Doug Holland, Harley, whatever the fuck, Paris, you can't take away from the fact that them motherfuckers were one of the best at what they did. There was nobody that could, the madman on the fucking bass shit was Harley. Paris was the dude who just sat there fucking pumping out the riffs. That's what he did. I mean, Doug came when Age of Quara was already recorded and he, and he played second guitar on it. Like, but you cannot take away from the fact that those dudes were the nastiest motherfuckers at what they did. So if you have these dudes and you have to step up your game 
to match what they were doing. And, you know, a lot of times um, that requires like really learning about music. And I studied voice under Don Lawrence and, and uh, how to use and, and just being physically fit now at 60 years old. Like I said at the beginning of this, how we're coming full circle now, the whole thing was to um, be in a position where you could do what it is that you used to do at fucking 20 years old. I could still do that flip on fucking We Gotta Know if we played it. I, I, You know, I could still fucking do anything that I was doing at 20 years old right now when I'm 60, 40 years later, except I feel I've developed my voice more as a musician um, to be able to do more with my voice than I was. You know, people kind of reference my shit to like, Oh, the age of quarrel. Well, the age of quarrel. I went in and sang that whole fucking album in one day. Like I don't. My, some people don't know that, but that album was done in one. They rushed me through that shit. I didn't know shit about like anchoring and vocalization or any of that shit. But to a certain degree, like then, when if you listen to Up in Arms, the last uh, blood clot record, it was. You know, it was, uh, or even when me and Mac and the fellas were going out now and playing, playing the, and we're playing the Cro-Mag shit for the last, I don't know how many fucking whatever, 10 years, 12 years, whatever the fuck 14. it was. Yeah, well, people would see that and be like, holy shit, man. And I'm like, yeah, like, you can't judge my vocal capabilities by what I did when I was fucking, you know, in 1984. And everybody talks shit that, you know, the Cro-Mag shirt in the movie 1984, the, the Wonder Woman. But the thing is, the demo was done in fucking 84. And that's why uh, the Cro-Mag legacy really started at that point when we recorded that. And first was the Don Lawrence demo. And then it was the demo with Jay, Jerry Williams' brother that became the cassette tape the black cassette that was age of quarrel. So, I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's having the passion to continue in your art, but it's also in investing the time to become better at what you do, you know, and, and investing the money. In some cases I had to pay Don Lawrence, like, and this was going back, Fucking 20 years ago, I was paying him $150 for an hour. You know, I, I don't even know what he charges now because the other thing was when I would go in, this girl would be coming out and he goes, that girl right there, Stephanie, she's going to be famous one day. You know who the fuck that was? That was fucking Lady Gaga, dude. Yeah. Oh, shit. Don Lawrence trained Lady Gaga and she was in there fucking playing the piano and all kinds of shit. And, but I'm saying that was an investment in time. If I wanted to be a good writer, I had to invest in a teacher and a mentor. I took Robert McKee's classes. I fucking studied. I signed up for his, for his one day workshops on, on genre, like comedy and whatever the fuck. That's the thing. When you're hungry, how the fuck do you stay hungry 
for 40 fucking years, so hungry that you still want to put out the best shit you could possibly put out, not put out some piece of trash, you know, record, just because you have the name of something, whatever the fuck, and put out a shitty fucking record, and that's representing where the fuck you're at. That's not, that's a hack. So it's about investing the time, investing the money, investing your soul in what the fuck you do and staying passionate about what the fuck you do. I'm still as passionate to do my 14th fucking Ironman as I was to do my first. I'm still as passionate to do my, my fucking sixth and seventh book as I was to do my first or the first record or the first recording I'm going in this weekend. I'm like, I'm like fucking stoked as a motherfucker. And it's not out of ego that, Oh yeah. Like, you know, it's not about that. It's about, I get to play with these amazing fucking musicians and, 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 and invest my time and my love of what I do. And hopefully put a message out there with some heavy fucking music that people are going to like. And, and you I know, want to ask you. I want to ask you directly something that ties what you're talking about. Yeah, there was a lot of in, there was a lot of investment of time in blood clot. Now, um, there was an earlier iteration, and when you guys played Thompson Square Park, you brought back that Burn Babylon song, and that made me happy. Right. That's I was the like, damn, they're bringing hard shit back. I was psyched. That's what and, we're know, doing, like. And That's so, what we're doing on this, man. So the question, so I, and and in talking about the different people that you had in the band, it being po- and you brought them up earlier, um, it be impossible not to mention the fact that you know you and Todd youth formed together and you guys brought that blood clot thing to a whole new level. Yeah. How did you, as a person, feel to take the time with the band? I mean, you know Todd forever. You know, you guys really were pushing hard. I mean, I mean, you remember hanging it? We were hanging out all three of us backstage together when Blood Cloud played Philly. You know, yeah. it, it, like how? Where, where was your emotions and the inertia to push forward after losing Todd, and especially the way that we lost Todd? Like, how? What did you? What? Where did you? Uh, what did you? What did you do in your head to kind of say, okay, you know what? Todd's gone, but I still want to move forward. Like, where was the the motivation? And like, talk about that a little bit. Right. Well, I just want to say, first of all, that uh, because that's adversity, right? And it's pushing on in the face of adversity. It's taking a negative situation and trying to make something uh, positive out of it. So initially, we had been talking about playing and, uh, you know, nothing was really happening. So I went out to do uh, a half Ironman in California, in San Diego. But I tore my hand, I tore my calf muscle, my gastric fucking whatever, like the, 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 the calf, the, it's three parts to the calf. It's the part that's way underneath that's very difficult. So I said, all right, let me go to California. I, I, was, I was flew into LA and then I was going to go down, drive down to San Diego and do the race. So I gave myself time off. And I didn't run on it. I tried to run. I didn't even get a half mile. The calf seized up on me. I had to pull out of the race. Now, I could have been fucking the crumb bum doom and gloom. 
But you know what I did? I said, Todd, my race is canceled. I'm not even going to San Diego now. I'm here for a week. Let's fucking get these tunes together. And that's what we did. And that was the initial demo that got us signed by Slagle. That's the, so when Todd passed away, there was that time of like, not even, you know, it fucked us up. Me, Joe, I mean, Joey Castillo, the drummer, is the one who found, uh, what's his name, from Stone Temple Pilots. Like, he was on, the singer for, from Stone Temple Pilots, he would, um, what's his name again? I'm, I'm fucking blanking on it. I think his name's Lane Stanley. Is that it? Something no, like that? that's Allison I don't, Chase. I don't know shit about, I don't really know nothing about them bands. Right. So, well. so the, the bottom line was, Joey came out, sound checked to get him. Uh, I, I got, I, this is fucking me up. Who was the singer for Stone Temple Pilots? Hold now, on. I was, Who was the singer for Stone Temple Pilots? Uh, yeah. Anyway, oh, Scott Weiland. Scott Weiland. So, right. So, so Joey found him dead on the bus. So like it fucked Joey up, it fucked me up, it fucked Nick up. Like we were, you know, Nick's had his battle with drugs. Joey was in fucking, Joey's been clean and sober. I'm fucking off the shit. And like just losing a friend like that, the band didn't even matter. I was like, that was the last thing on my fucking mind was what, how's that going to affect the band and the record deal? The label was fucking... They invested a lot to give us the money. They gave us 1990s money that, you know, they yeah. really loved the album. So that was fucked up. And then like, it was just a process of letting all that shit heal. And then down the road, it was right before the pandemic hit. It was like 2019. I want to say October, no November, maybe. And me and Tom Capone flew out and had a rehearsal with Joey and Nick and Tom fucking nailed it. These dudes couldn't believe like the fucking he was able to play every fucking song. And then we were like, all right, well, like, you know, it's been a while. We're going to have to like push forward with the band and, you know, all that shit. And then the pandemic hit. So then it was like, these dudes are locked down. We can't be flying back and forth, you know, East Coast, West Coast, all this shit. So then I just was like, yo, we got to find some East Coast motherfuckers. And, you know, uh, Darren filled in for Mackie on a tour and fucking killed it. And we got along. So I was like, all right, well, and, and that's and then. um Manny from Glassjaw, whatever the fuck, the bass player. You know, so I mean, we just uh, we just put the shit together, man. That was, and, and we never, and we never stopped. Like me and Tom started writing, and writing, and writing, and the shit was pissing him off that these lockdowns were happening and motherfuckers is losing their jobs, and now they're saying, now you see what study just came out today, all over the news. The lockdowns did nothing, a 0.024% of reduction in cases and deaths from the lockdowns. They were fucking bullshit. But at the time, right, 
It's just like now, if you say some information about this whole shit, it's like, oh, yeah, that's true. Cloth masks don't stop COVID. Uh, you can still get, you know, COVID, uh, even if you're vaccinated, whatever. Like, if you would have said that two years ago, it was like they would take your fucking page down. So the point is, is that... Um, Tom was so fucking pissed off at everything that was happening and he was out of work because they canceled every fucking, just everything, right? And I said, Tom, pick up your fucking guitar, bro. This is when you pick up your guitar and you write. You write in this consciousness that you're in. When we wrote Age of Quarrel, this is what I was going through. When we wrote fucking Signs of the Times and We Gotta Know and all this shit, that was the anthems of what the fuck we was going through in them days with the Reagans and the fucking rest of them, dude. Like, right, dude. That's what you're supposed to do as an artist. You know, in an artist, in, in the times of turmoil and fucking chaos is when you create. Look at the best artists, the best musicians, all the shit that came out of the 60s and 70s, the revolutionary shit. So that's how this manifested. It was a natural, organic fucking process. I'm so happy. Uh, Tom's doing great. He's been fucking clean uh, for over two years now that I've been working with him because you don't take something away from somebody that just because they had a mishap, you know, you fucking stand by your friends, man. You don't throw them under the fucking bus. And I knew this guy could fucking pull it together, man, because I know Tom since the, you know, way the fuck back, dude. And, and, and I'm I'm so honored, you know, to be working with him and, and uh, you know, and it's going to be more of that. I would say it's more of a combination of like, like what we played when we did um, Tompkins Square and we played the new song Souls. And we did save the robots. So it's a, I would say it's more of a mix between like the blood clot with Danny uh, Shula and 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 Scott Roberts and Lopez and and, and, and Rick yeah Ricky Lopez. Uh, even though you know fucking uh, Scott wrote all that shit, but I'm me, saying uh... it's it's back to those heavy roots. But there's definitely a lot of punk rock shit going on too. So. Let me ask you one thing in relation to Tom that kind of ties in with the uh, everything we've talked about earlier. There's and, I, and I've talked about this with Eddie Leeway and quite a few people. Hardcore punk, which is origins, you're almost always tied to um, inner city kids, kids that are you know pushed out from society. I've always found it interesting that the minute that a, a band member or a well-known person within the scene gets on drugs, you know, be it heroin or whatever else. And there's almost like a social pariah label put on these folks. And I always found it interesting that, oh, yeah, well, this is what the case is because it's almost like a contradiction in terms of what the scene was and how many people were using heroin. Like, And so when you said, I didn't want to push him away, I, 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 can, I can see that coming from you, but I wonder how many people did get pushed away and didn't have someone pull them in. I got to tell you something, 20 years after my whole crack and all that shit, I still had motherfuckers saying, oh, yeah, he's a crackhead. So, like, you know, I don't know, man. It's like, I don't know if people, 
when I see a motherfucker down, I try to help that motherfucker, like, for the most part, right? Like, I mean, we wrote Show You No Mercy, yeah, but that was for a motherfucker that keeps burning you and burning you and burning you and burning you. Then there ain't no mercy shown to that motherfucker. It's like, you know, you ain't cha- a leopard don't change his spots. But just because somebody fucks up, got to give him chance man you got to give him hope man i'm dealing with a brother who's my brother's a fucking drug addict man and like i'm having to deal with that in my personal life but like i knew how much music meant to tom capone and that if he could get back on the horse you know that he could he could put all that other you can't live in a void you have to have something extremely positive to take the place of the extremely negative shit so that's why I was like, let's do this, bro. Let's do this band. Like, you know, like when we flew out to L.A., man, it was like it all was coming together. And then the pandemic hit. And then we had to record those fucking songs in the middle of the pandemic. The dude was like illegally opening up the recording studio for us. But I'm not of the mindset to like, just because somebody had a problem with drugs to give up on them. It's when people do constantly grimy shit and they're not on drugs. Like, that's the motherfuckers you avoid. It's not like I had to make amends with a lot of shit. And, you know, I took (coughs) fucking, uh, you know, I took a fucking pound of weed from JW and never paid him. Like, so I had to come back when I got off the drugs and I had to mend all those bridges with everybody. And that took years and years and years of work, man. But that was not me. That was me when I was fucked up and smoking fucking free base and crack cocaine and taking pills and drinking and, you know, or stupid as, a kid or whatever, and then, you know, made some bad choices along the way. But it, it, it's, I'm just really excited to to bring this next, you know, um, incarnation of Blood Clot around, and 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 we got a seven song EP dropping and playing, setting up shows now. It's uh, Laz from El Nino is producing the record, so. It's definitely going to be on the heavy side and, and then we'll get out there and, and, and play shows. And, um, um, it's just an exciting time to be doing music, man, because like, look at the times we're living in, man. Like the music has to reflect that shit. And that's where I'm at. My whole thing is I don't give a fuck about anything that's going on right now. What people's political views are, I could give a fuck about any of it. I'm going out there the same way with the same mindset and consciousness that I was 10 years ago. 10 years ago, I never asked anybody what their fucking medical status was. I still will never do that. The the fucking venues and the bands... We'll play with anybody, regardless of whatever the fuck, dude. We don't care. We want... It's about bringing the scene back together right now, not these fucking crumb bums that ain't never done shit, and they're sitting online throwing shade. They threw shade at the fire Festival, dude. 
Fucking what kind of shit is that? Oh, nobody should buy these bands. Records don't support these bands. Anybody who was involved in the in the festival in t- the festival in Tampa, they they fucking everybody was talking shit. So if you're gonna listen to what the little fucking wash women say on fucking social media, I could give a fuck less, dude. I don't give a fuck about that. I don't give a fuck when I got into punk rock in 1977 and going to fucking shows and then the bad brain and and all this shit all the way through. It was always somebody talking shit and and whatever the fuck. So now people just do it from behind their keyboards and fucking dude. It's so fucking soft. And that's why I'm just like, I want I want to personally extend the hand and say, dude, I don't give a fuck. Whatever you decided, that's fine. Like, let's just get music happening again. That's where the healing takes place. You don't know how many people wrote me after the Tompkins Square Park fucking show last April and said, I fucking needed that so fucking bad. I needed that day out there, man. And it was nothing but positivity flowing off the fucking stage and the crowd and everything. We had over 3000 people. And then look what the media and these fucking hardcore fucking people that go into the chat rooms, what they, what they did, what, what they tried to turn a beautiful fucking day and a beautiful event, what they tried to turn it into. And I don't care about those people. I care about the people that want to come out and go to a fucking show and move on with their fucking life. And that's 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 what I was going to point out that the hard thing is to read the internet and and as a hardcore person you read the internet and you you have a problem understanding like how could someone from our thing even feel this way and the thing that i've learned is that the people that write on the internet we can't even determine who they are where they're from and so instead of putting a lot of lip service towards them you know, I, I've done it on this podcast. I've said, you know, like, fuck these people. Ignore like them. And, and so, but moving, moving on to what you were talking about, I stood in the middle of that crowd for every band that played. I, I never. I know you I, do because you live this shit, dude. I, um, the only time I was on the stage because, like, you got to get up here. And I took that picture of Murphy's Law. And. Yeah. I got told a long time ago, and I get told often by the older guys, just how insane and charismatic and just there was a time when Jimmy Murphy's Law was the embodiment of what a New York hardcore frontman was in. And that was like the moment with so many people in front of him. That's the first time I seen Murphy's Law at that size crowd and everybody falling on his words. And it was like, holy fuck. And I had the same opinion. Fuck these people writing this shit. But... We roll right in the shows. We've been killing it with these things. And I'll tell you, it's just important for people that are in hardcore now to still see people like you from that very first wave of hardcore bands active in new bands. Like, yeah, you know, for the rest of your days, people are going to fucking go ahead and ask you about Chromags and want to see you play Chromags. But there's also an interesting thing where, you know, you had duty Chromax, you did both worlds. You did blood clot. You know, like you've always how about MOI, mode of ignorance. Oh, Dog sh- Island, 
Harley on drums and Robert Nunzio from the totally uh, fucking skip my mind on on fucking uh, on bass. That's the things. Like there are a few people in hardcore that have been able to escape and do more than just being a band guy. You've already shown that. You've shown so many different elements to you, and as you said, you do it all but scheduling yourself. Is there something that you haven't touched yet that you're looking to push forward to as you keep moving forward? Um, well, you know, this new opportunity and challenge came. I've never worked on a scripted show. So, you know, Elgin, true to his word, was like, we're going to make this fucking happen. And, uh, you know, and like that's the next real challenge for me is, um, you know, having to, you know, being involved in a, in a, in a TV show that's, um, and it's about the Lower East Side and exactly the lives that we all lived. So, like, um, I'm very excited for that. And, um, you know, whatever, whatever, whatever new challenges uh, may arise. I mean, I'm, I'm even looking at this, like, double Iron Man thing that takes place over two days, so... It's called Ultraman, uh, you know. So you know, there's a there's a ton of uh, I gotta get my physical body back to the way it was prior to my surgery because I did surgery, I never really healed, and then I kind of fucking pulled tore my hamstring. So um, you know, it was uh, you know, it's just. I like to just keep challenging myself and, and, uh, you know, I'm moving out of New York now. I'll always be coming back here cause I have work here and everything else and family here, but it's time. Like we, you know, pre pandemic, we were talking about moving um, someplace warmer and, and then I can train year round and all of this stuff. And I want to, I'm learning how to uh, grow my own food and, and and organic farming and all that kind of stuff because I I feel that that moving forward to where we're at like and it, that's an important thing for me to be able to do is to learn how to. It's always trying to learn new stuff, you know. Like what else can I learn? I learned how to be a coach and then I went and did it. I learned how to do. An Iron Man just fucking went and did it. I learned how to write books. I just did it. I learned how to write a TV show. I got or 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 a movie, and I'm writing this punk rock comedy too that I want to shoot myself maybe as a director. It, it it's just uh, constantly putting challenges in front of you and taking the necessary steps. Uh, to do it and and never be fearful of the outcome because as I said today I, I had the newsletter go out if if you subscribe to my website johnjosephdiscipline.com every Monday the newsletter goes out it's full of motivational stuff and I said you know fear has two meanings that it's an acronym face everything and rise or forget everything and run but if we face everything and rise to the challenge the greatest gains in a in our life are just on the other side of that fear, right? So like when we did 30 to Life, you know, the documentary that we shot for like a whole fucking year and then we had to wait two years to do the follow-ups to these guys. 
These are hard motherfuckers, Joe. These are guys like they fucking did 20 years in gladiator school with a motherfucker trying to take their life maybe sometimes every fucking day. Chino, if you know about Chino State Prison or fucking San Quentin or Pelican Bay or any of these other really fucked up prisons, that's where these guys came out of. And still they had fear, right? So we made them confront that and we sat down with them and we go, what is it you fear in life? And it could have been anything. One guy was like, I'm scared of heights, man. And you know what? Paul de Gelder was a clearance diver. That's like Australia's version of uh, the SEALs or whatever. And he took them motherfuckers up in an airplane and had them jump out of an airplane. If somebody had a fear of water, he took them out in a boat and fucking made them jump in the ocean. If somebody had a fear of dealing with people because they just did four years in isolation in, in the shoe in Pelican Bay, he made them go out and do community service and feed old people and, 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 and communicate. So it's always about moving in the direction of that fear and taking the proper necessary steps to accomplish that. And if you want to do something like you want to write a book, you want to write a film, you want to write a record, you want to do a marathon, figure out how to do it and fucking start. That's what I always tell people. Set a goal and fucking start. That's what you got to do, man. If someone wanted to reach out and either just check out the stuff you have on the discipline or maybe hire you as a coach or check out your books. Do you have one website now or are you still yeah, have that's like- what it is? John Joseph discipline.com. I mean, you know, I usually, I answer all the, the DMS that I get on Instagram and whatever the fuck. Although I've, you know, I've been able to express my opinions on certain things. And now my account got shadow banned, whatever, I mean, I've been around before all this bullshit. I, Anyway, so I don't really give a fuck about that. But if you go to the website or you hit me, send me a message on uh, Instagram direct message or a message on uh, on uh, on on Facebook or whatever the fuck. You know, you can reach out to me on that website. I always I you know, I always write people back, man, because I, I I'm going to end it with one story. And it's why you always try to help people, because um. This guy hit me up and he was going through some really crazy shit. And I spent, I spent time chatting with him on zoom and all this shit. And that was it. I didn't hear from him again. And then he goes, then it was like months and months and months went by. And then like I did the walking tour and this dude stops you know, at the end of the tour, he's like, yo, I just wanted to talk to you for a second. And he goes, and he came out of prison and all of this shit. And his, and he goes, yo, man, like, I just want you to know I'm that dude that hit you up. And I was standing there with a fucking gun in my hand, ready to fucking kill myself. And I don't know why, but I said, let me reach out to, to John and see if he answers me. And fucking thank God I did, dude. Because he was like, bro, like I fought back. You spent like 45 minutes with me online. And then like, I he didn't tell me what the fuck was going on, but I was like sensing the pain. And I'm like, look, man, you just got to fucking work through this shit. Like, you know, I didn't know he was in prison. I, he didn't tell me any of that shit. Just sound like somebody that was having a fucking hard time as of late. So... 
Uh, yeah, man, it's um, it's it's pretty crazy, and, and uh, anybody that reaches out to me, I always I always try to respond. I mean, you know, I'm not I'm not a shrink. I don't do that kind of shit. But if somebody, you know, I just look at it this way: if you fill your life up with positive shit and you're constantly grinding it, you don't have time for bullshit. And that's what I said. You don't have time for bullshit or bullshit people. And by bullshit people, I mean, you know, people that they're just constantly making excuses and getting fucked up and like bringing drama to your fucking life. And it's always like their drama is more important than anything. Listen, you know, those people in due time, hopefully they find themselves, but. I have turned down clients. I had one woman, she's like, I want my son. You know, she paid for a three package coaching thing with me. Right. And after the first 30 minutes of her, the coaching session, I had to say, look, dude, I can't coach you, man. That's it. I'm going to fucking write your mother. She's like, and he's like, well, I didn't want to be here anyway. She paid for it. And I go, exactly. So you're wasting your time and my time and your mother's money. And I called her up. I go, I can't coach him here. I refunded her fucking money. You have to want to better yourself. You have to want to change. And you, you know, it's like they say, you, you, you know, you could, you could bring a horse to water, but you can't make him drink it. And that's the fact. That's the fucking reality of the situation. Like people have to want to help themselves and better themselves. And the coach is somebody that, gives you the empowerment that you already have. I'm not in I'm not like injecting you with a superpower. You have the superpowers. It's about removing all the blocks that are not letting you see that. And that's what coaching discipline is all about. So, if anybody wants to reach out, and as a matter of fact, I'm making dinner for myself and my. I'm bringing some food to Michael Alago now because Johnny Z passed away, and today's the the five year anniversary of his mother's passing. And you know, when friends are having a hard fucking time, man, you try to do something nice for people and and, and help them out. It's too much of these like, and that comes back to like when people are struggling with drugs. This whole like kick a motherfucker like just because they fucked up like and, and, and it's just it's not it's not a good way to be man. No man, and I think you kind of lead the way by trying to infuse positivity and support. I know um, when my mom was going through cancer, you had a lot of really nice things to say to her. Yeah. Really lifted her spirits up. In general, there's few people there's few people in hardcore like you for multiple reasons, but again. It's the it's because your story didn't end when the band end and your story didn't go. Oh yeah, we don't really know what happened to that guy. He just kind of fell off and was hiding in a bush trying to buy coke. The yeah. fact that you <laughs> that's like the craziest thing is like you gotta that's hear, not, you gotta get Craig on and have. Oh no no. More importantly, you know, is, that is like, motherfucker. He has to like embellish the shit a little bit. Too. <laughs> I love the biggest, that motherfucker, man. I love Craig, dude. But like that's not even like the that's what's so cool about your story is it's not even halfway into the story and you already have the adversity and you faced it. And I and I, I really appreciate you I know you got I know you got shit to do. We're a little over the time you said you wanted oh, to go with. But um you know, you're my boy, dude, and I just and I and I just wanna say 
and, and I'm not trying to fucking like, you know, whatever the fuck. Like, you're a motherfucker, dude. Like, I always say time reveals a person's true character over the fucking years. And every single time I've ever had any dealings with you or the Crow Mags, your word is your fucking bond. You treat the fucking bands because you're a musician yourself. Like, nobody could ever say Joe Hardcore ripped me off or Joe Hardcore's fucking, you could let this, you know, you could say, hey, man, you know, that's a brash motherfucker, but nobody could talk shit about you not fucking supporting the entire hardcore scene in, in the country because, like, you're all about it. Just like you said at Tompkins Square Park, like, you're in the fucking you know, in the middle of the pit or when the Cro-Mags would play, you'd be on fucking stage losing your mind, singing fucking, you know, singing, you know, grabbing the fucking mic and whatever. You you like, you like live the shit and, and you've always done right by every fucking band, dude. And That's all you I can hope to do, you, <laughs> you know? You <laughs> I appreciate that. You don't you put know? up with bullshit and some people don't like that, but too fucking bad. You know, that's, yeah, I'd gonna... rather have that than fake ass motherfuckers. Like, you know, that's, that's what it boils down to. So anyway, next time I'll... I get, next time I get you warm, we're going to take a, I want, I want to take a trip down some LES stuff that goes beyond hardcore. I know oh, you're going to yeah, run, I, I know run. you're going to run, but uh, real quick to shout out your socials, shout out your, um, website well, one more you, time for us you, you know you can't you can't even if you, you you can't even put in my whole name on fucking i'm john joseph on, on facebook and and jj Cromag on twitter and john joseph Cromag on instagram but nobody's seeing my feed or whatever because i posted the robert malone joe joe rogan interview or whatever the fuck and like you know like whatever but uh, yeah, you know, you, you can find me out there, hit me, you can send me a message on my, uh, on, on my coat, on my website or whatever the fuck, uh, and keep an ear open uh, for the new blood class shit that's, that's coming out. And, uh, and then we'll be hitting the road and playing with, uh, fucking bands that, you know, want to get down and shit. That's what it's all about. You know, like just stay positive and keep making art, man. What the fuck else is there? <laughs> there ain't much. As soon as you get some songs ready, we'll put one on the uh, opening of, the, of a podcast episode. That's going to be soon. <laughs> All right. Listen, John, thank you for everything. Hey, I love you, man. You so Can't Yo, wait to see you, you again. Thank Absolutely. you for coming on. Uh, you're the fucking man, man. Joe Hardcore forever, bro. All right, brother. Take care. All right, you too, bro. Peace. Peace. Like I said, there are so many different holes and places we could have went with the story. And I feel as if because John has the coaching now and the John Joseph Discipline website, it was kind of good to get a current idea where he's at, a snapshot of what he's got going on. And we went back a little bit and we talked a bit about different aspects. And I hope that you get a better understanding of his position and where he came from. I really suggest if you want the John Joseph story, you get it from the horse's mouth. And this isn't me trying to sell his book. It's been out for years. It's not hard to find, but evolution of a crow magnet for those who are not privy to some of the things that we talked about earlier and would like to go forward and check it out. The hardest thing to do when talking to someone that has literally been doing things for at this stage in his game, 45 years is finding a place to start. And I feel as if 
when people like John come on the show and they've got active new things. That's probably where they want to go. I mean, there's going to be guys that just want to talk about the old shit. We've had plenty of them on there, but, you know, John's got new stuff, the blood clot stuff. I would really suggest checking out the fast stuff, the old shit. It's all fantastic. And again, go to the website, TIHCpodcast.com, and make sure that you check out the links. Thank you for supporting, and I will talk to you next week. And again, happy birthday, Kayla. Happy birthday, Soupy. And I'll see you motherfuckers. Goodbye.